Gustav writes, the crowd demands a god before anything else. So now they're demanding a god, so a leader and a god. He says, the crowd definitely has a figurehead, at least at some point. So in order for it to be a Gustavian crowd, it has to have a figurehead, a leader, and a god, and an ideology. If you think about how we behave as individuals, we, we behave differently in different environments, different expectations we were programmed to. We would behave differently at a fast food fo- joint than we do at a funeral. Behave. Even that word sounds like a, uh, a brainwashing term. Be, have, right? If you behave, you will have something for the effort. You know, be and have. Well, why does Gustav think the crowd demands a God? He doesn't say. He doesn't even give evidence that they do. Is this concept banished to a bygone era? Well, it exists today in contemporary humans. Some humans still appear to need a God. Is it a fact or not? I can't say. I'm just talking on my ass. But it does seem that a lot of people need a God, be it religious or not, an ideology. Perhaps there are studies in this. I'm pretty sure I read somewhere about it. Gustav claims sentiment, uh, an emotional opinion, is an eternal conflict with reason. So he's saying if you have an emotional opinion, it is the opposite. It's in conflict with reason, assuming reason would mean, you know, truth, I, which it's not. Right? I could picture myself saying something as two-dimensional as this, but when you, when you think about it for a moment, depending on how he defines sentiment and reason, sentiment when controlled can exist perfectly well near reason in a three-dimensional tank, like two fish. But if either gets too large, they will eat the other. There needs to be balance, yin and yang. Or does there? Obviously, controlling reason is part of being reasonable. We can't let our ideas take off without proofs or evidence and still be reasonable. Reason is the mechanism. Not the idea being reasoned, except for right now. (laughs) Same with emotion. If we let it go, it may feed itself and spin out. We control that by not feeding the monster. Is there a time when we shouldn't control our emotions and abandon reason? Probably when we're living in a forest and a predator attacked our tribe, we would need to face our fear by abandoning reason and attack the beast. Are we actually abandoning reason though? Perhaps there might be a better path forward like climbing a tree or running. Perhaps when we're cornered, our emotions take over. Who knows? Why does the word climb end in a B? Climb. Doesn't make sense. If we haven't pronounced it in 400 years, maybe we can drop the B, climb. Natural selection, or whatever programmed us, has given us sentiment for a reason, one would assume. But we also have the capacity to reason as well. So we probably needed both, and maybe still do. Either way, our genetic programming is a vector of attack by the manipulator, by triggering your emotions, or using poison fruit, by poison fruiting our reason with secret knowledge clickbait. Gustav wrote these religious instincts were easily activated. Humans want a hero who has the power to remedy all injustices, all injustices, all injustices, and all evils. A legend of a man. That is from Gustav's perspective. Today I think a lot of us want to be a hero, he mentions. We all want the power ourselves to remedy all injustices injustices, <laughs> and all evils to obliviate evil. Either Gustav was a pussy 
or our society has evolved over the last 130 years, or both, or neither. Obliviates, right, means to prevent, to keep from happening, to render unnecessary, or to anticipate, to prevent by uh, interception, to remove from the path or the way, to make unnecessary, to obviate. Did I say obliviate? Obviate. Obviate, to prevent. To obviate the message, to obviate the deception, to obviate the resistance. Gustav continues that humans have a religious-shaped belief in ideology, be it a social, religious, political, and that atheists exhibit all the intolerant passion of a religious sentiment. We've all seen that. Gustav saw this back in 130 years ago. So we can clearly see Gustav is absolutely overgeneralizing about humans. I don't know what the percentages are, but I know not everyone is so close-minded when it comes to ideologies. There may be a lot, but we don't know what percentages, right? It's not 100%. I could see if people define ideology to be beliefs and dogma, but the critical thinkers among us would not. We would define ideology to be a model of a principle or ideas that we know may not be true. We know there are different groups that believe in competing ideologies and some hold both as plausible. Ideologies are therefore models or principles that may not be true or even the best way. To me, if one wants to even attempt to be honest and search for the truth, it is clearly more complex than overgeneralizing people like Gustav does. So that's not his goal, I'd assume. I get that he might be just being blunt and going for bulk, you know, heuristics. The truth is generally this direction, which is not a bad thing when we were making earlier first attempts. Could be misleading. There are clearly militant atheists and peaceful ones, just as there are libertarian leftists and totalitarian leftists. Things are more complex, right? Just as there are rational people who are also religious, the degree of open-mindedness or closed-mindedness is not directly correlated by religiosity, depending on how you define it. But I keep forgetting Gustav's religiosity includes militant atheists. Gustavian religion includes all people who are obsessed and closed-minded, whether they believe in a God or not, but he's throwing all believers under the same bus and only including the fanatic atheists, where I argue there are some religious people who are also open-minded, perhaps a greater percentage than atheists, who knows? He does appear right that for a good percentage of any followers of any of an ideology, it can become a cult, like globalism, environmental extremism, or social justice warriors all have large factions that act as a cult. He says people transitioned from religion to reason. The objects of the religious beliefs have been transformed, but the religious sentiments are still the same. He means mode of thought, the lazy emotional opinion versus the work of continued critical thought. Gusoff Gustav refers to this lazy, closed-minded thinking that can affect us all as the religious form, which we all have to fight against as our tired, lazy minds will eventually revert back to that form of reasoning without constant critical analysis of our thoughts and beliefs. Gustav refers to the psychology of the crowd 
as an explanation of the revolutionary's bloodthirsty, ferocious side, a horde of epileptic savages abandoning themselves without restraint of their instincts. So he's saying their instincts restrain them again. Now he's back to that. I don't think so, right? If anything, your instincts are, you know, what cause you to become savage. We have savage instincts, right? I would argue that they're, uh, yeah. Gustave claims the French Revolution was merely the establishment of a new religious belief in the mind of the masses, and any similar uprising are a phenomenon of an intellectual kind. I think it had to do with starvation, Gustave, and possibly uh, the volcano that erupted the year before in Iceland. So he's talking about the the new religious belief in the mind of the masses, and any similar uprising or phenomenon of the intellectual kind. That is crowds motivated by religious sentiments that pitilessly extirpate whoever is opposed to the establishment of the new faith. I disagree with Gustav. Revolutions are not to bring about a new ideology. They can be due to the overbearing oppression of a dictator in which the crowd want to bring back the freedoms they had until recently enjoyed, or at least the minimum level at which humans can exist happily. Gustav writes, upheavals are only possible when it's the soul of the masses that brings them about. The most absolute despots could not cause them. I interpret that to mean despots not able to create and control upheavals, which is just another Gustavian affirmation sans proof. That's it for Gustav's book one. So let's review a little bit from Gustav's book one where we discuss the mind of crowds, lack of reasoning power and imagination, sentiments and morality, religious shape assumed by their convictions. That is Gustav's definition of religious shape, which includes narrow-minded atheists who adhere to dogmas that are lacking the critical spirit. And we started way back with the mental unity of the crowd. Now let's discuss the remote factors of opinions of crowds. So what are the remote factors? What does Gustav mean by remote factors? Well, remote factors are factors that are remote in time. So non-immediate factors or non-recent factors that affect the crowd's opinion. We will cover immediate factors that affect the opinion of the crowd soon, but right now we are on remote. He wrote, The origin of the beliefs of crowds is the consequence of a preliminary process of elaboration. So the origin is a process. What the hell does he mean by that? The origin of the crowd's opinions come from an early process of working out the detailed meaning of something. Gustav claims these early or preliminary processes happened long ago and are long duration and are revealed or triggered by a crowd event years or possibly generations later. Gustav breaks these preliminary processes into five categories, race, traditions, time, political and social institutions, and institutions and education. He initially calls his point five institutions in education, but later mentions it as instruction in education. So I don't know. I guess he probably typoed it maybe, right? 
I'll go over these quickly and then a bit more in detail. What's the difference between social institutions and regular institutions, you ask? I don't know if you've read Foucault. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but he uh, he wrote some crap about the two types of institutions, the uh, social institutions and total institutions, or just institutions. If I recall properly, social institutions are the patterns of behavior of people, the actions they do, like marriage, church, female genital mutilation, whereas institutions are... Total institutions are the organizations. I guess a church would be an organization, but as well. Uh, created by the people that generally are meant to help people somehow. Like hospitals, psychiatric asylums, prisons, banks, schools, homeless shelters, orphanages, child institutions, weapons laboratories, bioweapons laboratories, psychological weapons research laboratory, e effective torturing laboratory. Social institutions are actions of people. Institutions are the organizations. So Gustav's point one on remote factors affecting the opinion of crowds is race. Woo, can we even talk about this? Gustav appears to define race as a people of a nation with shared values and genetic disposition. We each have, as individuals, we, we have genetic dispositions that are unique to us. So we have to take this genetic predisposition into account. And the nation we are in also has social standards that we've been expected to so to do so that that too must be taken into account. But to claim everyone of a nation has the same values or opinions or genetic disposition is not the case. My siblings and I all have diametrically opposed views and beliefs, despite having similar genetics. I think genetic disposition is similar to eye color or other factors. It's a probability of what trait the individual get from the vast options of our genetic ancestry. This would explain why siblings with similar upbringing would have such diametrically opposed views and beliefs. We may gen uh, generally look alike, but what's going on genetically is vastly more complex than what we like to think. We each have unique natures and shared nurtures. The nature and nurture deal again. <laughs> All right. So race, Gustav claims race represents suggestions of one's ancestors, an instinctual predisposition. His second point is traditions. He wrote synthesis of the soul of the race. Again with the race. By synthesis, we aren't talking about the idiotic Marxist fallacy of mixing thesis with antithesis to achieve some garbage synthesis. Mixing red with blue does not make a higher truth. It just makes purple. Mixing one with negative one does not make a higher truth. It just makes zero. It's an idiotic theory that Marxist scumbags are desperately trying to normalize as fact when it is clearly not. But synthesis. Here, Gustav is talking about creation. When you synthesize, when you create something like a synthesizer, you mix crap together to make something new. Not something true, just something new. And new doesn't necessarily even mean better. Like we mix some chemicals together to synthesize something new, but just randomly mixing chemicals together will not likely, uh, will most likely get you garbage. We can mix tones on a synthesizer to make new sounds. And again, just mixing sounds together by itself doesn't make better sounds. You need taste and skill to create better sounds. 
and mixing opposite sounds literally cancels out <laughs> each other to make silence. That's how the Bose uh, noise-canceling headphones work. So he thinks traditions are created by the soul of the people. Makes sense. What makes a people a people are their shared values and traditions. But Gustav claims after having been necessary, the traditions become harmful and crowds are the most obstinate maintainers of traditional ideas. Well, now he's saying, now he's saying the crowds are the maintainers of tradition, whereas before he said crowds were the uh, organisms that ate the core, destroyed. All they could do is destroy and eat the carcass of the society. Now they're the traditional ma- maintainers of traditions. Like, what the fuck, man? Stick to a rail. Uh, so how do traditions become harmful? Exactly. How are crowds the most obstinate maintainers of traditional ideas? Exactly. If I was an idiot or more of an idiot, I would read this passage and then think of people who are pro-tradition and then make the connection Gustav wants by thinking they are the idiot crowd and that they are harmful. See, he's planting the seed that, you know, the, the, the people who want tradition are harmful. So here it smells like... <coughs> Gustav is using the manipulative technique of fill the gaps or connect the dots, which makes the target think they came up with the idea the manipulator is trying to impress, perhaps at an even much later date. And he's doing all that without citing any evidence or proof of his assertion, or as he calls it, affirmation. So race then, tradition, his third point is time. He wrote, it prepares in succession the establishment of beliefs and their destruction. It is by the aid of this factor that order may proceed from chaos. So literal interpretation, I call bullshit. It's a false correlation that time causes anything. Time is simply a dimension. Yes, time is necessary for change to occur, but time itself is not the cause any more than any other dimension of forward and backward or left or right or up and down is the cause of two things colliding. Like the expression, time heals all wounds. It's not time that does the healing. It's the biological process, physical wounds, the loss of memory, senility, or revenge that heals emotional wounds. (laughs) Using the principle of charity and a natural interpretation, he's claiming beliefs create order in social behavior, then get stale and die, returning the society or social structure back to chaos. Gustav's affirmation sans evidence or proof. I don't know if it's intentional, but he's juxtaposing belief and absence of belief with order and chaos, making one connect the idea of belief with order and absence of belief with chaos, which is an almost religious viewpoint since religion is obviously being based on belief and is interesting coming from Gustav, who's apparently anti-religious. Yes, religion and belief are separate concepts, And I might be making false connections, but I just thought that was interesting. Also, it is a false assertion that all beliefs eventually are destroyed. If one comes across a universal truth, that belief is under no obligation to be destroyed. Even a false belief for that matter. There may not be change, or if there is, it may be towards something better or more true, or it may be towards something more false. There's no obligations. There's no proof of any mystical force that seeks out and destroys beliefs in general. 
Of course, beliefs that are wrong would seem to have a greater probability of changing, but if the religions of the world are any evidence, then that is also not the case. People have believed for centuries in many different gods, and some religions claim that other gods never existed, so at least one of them has to be false. <laughs> they can't both be true. So of Gustav's five remote factors that affect the opinions of the crowd, that was the first three, race, tradition, and time. The fourth category is political and social institutions. Gustav wrote the political and social institutions are erroneous ideas that have weak influence. They are effects, not causes, and nations are incapable of choosing what appear to them the best institutions. So he's saying all institutions, what people do, are erroneous. Everything everybody does is erroneous. All your laws are wrong. All your practices, rules, and social conventions, stuff you believe is wrong. doesn't matter what it is. It's wrong. Right. So again, assertions with no proof or evidence. He's implying that the crowd here is the nation, the entire people, not his Gustavian temporary crowd, right? Now it's the entire nation. So again, he's flipping all over the place. So Gustav defines institutions as labels which, you know, shelter the most dissimilar things under the same title. What a bizarre definition. It really seems like a non sequitur. Just random shit that has nothing to do with anything. An institution is a social practice or value. I have a, a hard time seeing a similarity between his definition and the standard definition of institution. Straining the, the principle of charity, I would see that men and women are dissimilar and they are placed under the same title of marriage, which is an institution. But what? But what about the institution of labor, selling one's time for money, or the social uh, institutions of laws? Different people agreeing to follow the same rules are very uh, similar things. They are not dissimilar, nor are they being sheltered under the same title. I guess it's all interpretation. You could probably spin it a certain way to try to force it to be. Right? So the title uh, are laws or rules, and they are individually or are different, are different, but not uh, the most dissimilar. There are many laws or rules that are very similar to others. Perhaps the entire collection of laws might be viewed as dissimilar things, but this is really making leaps that strain credulity. Now, where did I get strain credulity from? I don't know. Credulity, what's that mean? The disposition to believe too easily to disregard the strength of evidence about a belief you have to believe impossible or absurd things. Credulity means to be gullible. So to strain credulity means to strain gullibility. So to strain credulity means that while things are possible, this is not plausible. Only a gullible person would believe it. But it's straining credulity, so it's only a very gullible person would believe it. To strain credulity means very unlikely, I guess. To strain credulity. I've been reading too many old books. <laughs> How often do you hear people say strain credulity in conversation? Maybe I should start saying it strains credulity instead of saying bullshit. It makes me sound smarter. The prime minister having an intelligent thought strains credulity. <laughs> 
Okay, where was I? Gustav's Political and Social Institutions. Uh, he wrote, certain institutions that are theoretically bad, such as centralization, are obligatory for certain nations. I agree 100% that centralization is bad, but I don't know about being obligatory. This feels like a Gustavian joke, as they are really uh, obligatory, or is Gustav being, you know, a joke, joking? Uh it's kind of funny because it's true that centralization is bad and some idiot nations can't help themselves and tend to centralize despite that. It's similar to the, the joke against nurses. Nurses are smarter than doctors by definition, right? If you're a doctor, doc, which implies the definition of a nurse is someone who thinks they're smarter than a doctor. That's the joke, right? Gustav's final remote factor that he believes affects the opinion of his crowd is instruction and education. Even though he wrote instructions or institutions and in education, which was clearly a typo. Gustav talks about uh, falsity of prevalent ideas as to the influence of instruction on crowds. Statistical indications and the demoralizing effect on the Latin system of education. Don't know exactly what he means by the Latin system of education. Italian, Spanish, French are all Latin-based languages, and the Romans might have passed on the Greek logic, you know, the dialectical reasoning, arriving at the truth by exchanging logical arguments. I'm thinking maybe this is what he's talking about. I don't know. Gustav writes about uh, being demoralized by investigating the truth of opinions. <laughs> is he joking because he's implying that all opinions are not truth? and based on garbage that strains credulity? Or is he demoralized because he can't justify his assertions since he is not using dialectical reasoning because of the Latin system of education? I don't know. He seems to be crapping on the Latin education. I tend to uh, think the latter. So he wrote that he studied the mental constitution of the crowds. How? What techniques exactly? Are his results repeatable? You know, he said he's become acquainted with their modes of feeling, their modes of feeling. So he's not part of the crowd, right? Thinking and reasoning, and we shall now proceed to examine how their opinions and beliefs have become established. So this is Gustav. Apparently Gustav's pulled a magic crystal ball of knowledge out of his ass. He defines his Gustavian crowds in a specific way and then goes off and conflates the masses with his specific crowd which is a major fuck up considering this book is supposed to be about the crowd. You know, it's a major blow to the guy's cred credibility, but maybe I interpreted something wrong. I do often. Sometimes I'll reread something and realize it's the opposite of what I just thought he wrote. So it could be wrong, but that strains credulity. <laughs> it's funny how dialectic, dialectic in terms of, uh, arriving at truth using logical arguments, was uh, the word the Marxists stole as their name for the Marxist dialectic bullshit, where they synthesize bullshit out of their ass, which is a great perversion of the word dialectic, just like how they later uh, ride the coattails of critical thinking, which is to be uh, you know critical of thoughts, to question them. And then they use the term critical theory, which is the absolute opposite of critical thought. Critical theory is the most narrow-minded bigoted, anti-reason, illogical cult of an ideology. They try to destroy dialectic, 
logical argument, and critical thought. Coincidence? Strange credulity? Marxists are subhuman garbage and are trying to inject malevolent ideological cancer to confuse those not in the know. As I read this book, I really got the feeling that Gustav was an elitist, but at least he was against centralization and apparently against the Marxist garbage. Gustav wrote that the crowd's opinions are caused by two factors. Remote factors, of course, we already said remote in time, and immediate factors, meaning immediate triggers. Right? The remote factors are race, tradition, time, political and social institutions, and instruction and in education. Race, he wrote the most important factor. Environment, circumstances, events uh, represent social suggestions of the moment, but their influence is always momentary compared to the hereditary influence of one's genetics or race, as Laban refers to it. Race, he defines as your nationality and your genetics. So traditions. reviewing a little bit here. Traditions, he says, are based on the shared values of a nation and are genetically derived. He said, a nation of people cannot entirely recast, be recast, to have new traditions based solely on reason. So he's arguing against multiculturalism and permanent conquest by different ethnicities or the same ethnicity with different values. The Soviet Union only lasted 69 years before reverting back to the same religions they had before the Bolshevik nightmare. The young generation reverted back to traditions they never knew. So there is that. Maybe their grandparents, I don't know. But I have no idea what ethnic tradition my father's, you know, Nordic family had back in his motherland or fatherland or whatever gender their land has. So my traditions are extremely uh, recast. I'm living those traditions without being cognizant of it, if I am. So I share my father's distrust of authority. I have a calling to the sea. I sometimes crave seafood. I am sometimes confrontational. Are these traditions? (laughs) Perhaps moving on to a better uh, iteration is a tradition of my people. Perhaps that's what it is, right? Or am I not allowed to have a people based on my ethnicity? I don't know. Gustav claims people as an organism can change if modified by slow hereditary uh, accumulations. For that to be true, we have to be killing off those with the traits we do not want and only allow those to survive with the traits that we do. This is not the case with humans as an organism. So who refers to humans as an organism? (laughs) I mean, come on, Gustav. So, though a common and apparently successful tactic for change is to do it slowly and incrementally so people don't notice. This is a common tactic. Gustav claims it's hard for people to change and cites China as an example. Well, since he wrote that, there's been a massive modernization of China thanks to massive cash infusions from Western capitalists looking to cash in on the slave labor in recent decades. But have the Chinese people themselves changed their values and their beliefs? Mao did a number uh, by brainwashing the youth and made a successful cleave between generations, like how they've been trying to do in the West to promote generation gaps. Gustav clearly uses the uh, logical fallacy of stereotype a lot. Uh, And an example is when he mentions castes as a category of the crowd. A caste, according to Gustav, is a category of people who have the same education or similar job. Clearly not everyone in the same field, 
shares the same opinions. Is <laughs> this a gross stereotype? You might say there is a value in stereotype, as this is what we use in political science and statistics, to which I might retort. Stereotype is the logic of extrapolating a statistical average based on a set of data that is too small or even no data at all. It is absolutely not a complete data set where mean, median, or mode are then calculated. Actual scientists would be the first to admit that inductive logic and that of statistics is not conclusive. They might mention standard deviation of data or how diverse the dispersed the data set is and the likelihood of something happening or, or being true varies depending on how low dispersion or lower deviation from some nominal value, you know, like probabilities. They would also be the first to clarify or should be the first to clarify that interpretations of the data are not conclusive, especially if it's a complex system where the researcher had to make guesses and assumptions about any factors. But stereotype is so inaccurate that a competent statistician should balk at its gross assumptions. Balk, I say. Balk. Where did I get that word? I'm flashing back to uh, calculating RMS. Instead of doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles, people should uh, buy math textbooks and uh, refresh the concepts of math, practice them, learn new stuff, mess around with concepts, forced neuroplasticity, apparently fights off dementia. Anyway, Gustav should know better than to use the logic of stereotype. He should know better. And and worse than that, he, he act like his conclusions are based on something valid. Now, I don't want to crap on Gustav too much here. Today, we know he's talking about people who are not critical thinkers, I'm assuming. That is his crowd. Non-critical thinking mass hysteria or mass psychosis. Yes, there truly are mentally ill people who are at the extremes, who clinicians refer to when they talk about psychoses. But I'm talking about the effects that are just as detached from the truth. They just happen to be happening to the mentally healthy average Joe on the street who hasn't cracked a book on critical thinking or logic or logical fallacies. If the layman can cure themselves of psychosis by learning about critical thought, it makes you wonder that the if the uh, recognized mentally ill patients who are experiencing the same thing might be cured by simply researching and learning about critical thinking, the different patterns of inference, techniques of deception, etc. I would think so, but I don't know. Unless there's some hardwiring issue going on and, or mental uh, damage from some trauma. If we were to take Gustav's interpretations as gospel, there would be no hope for the masses learning about critical thinking which I know is bullshit because I'm just an average Joe like the next guy and I managed to figure it out that it's a beneficial thing to learn about critical thinking, logic, and the techniques of manipulation and deception used against us. So I could crack a book, start reading. It's <laughs> magic. So Gustav figured it out. He, he knew he figured it out. So he should have deduced other idiots are capable of figuring it out too. Why would he write a book on it if he didn't think there was an audience for it? It's kind of funny, eh? He had to have known, or perhaps he was illogical. Never assume others are completely rational. This is a powerful thing too, right? He may not have been irrational. He may not have been a rational person, which is the point of his book. You know, the guy has gotten in 
he's got to be a joker, right? So Gustav claimed the mentality of the crowd is always conservative, as if they don't like the change and yearn for the days of old. Then cites the destruction of religion by the French crowd in the end of the 1700s. So change, you know, and revolution is done by the mob, the crowd, and that is not very conservative. And then it only took a few years for the traditions to reemerge in the crowd, which is yet another instance of change. And again, not very conservative. If Gustav was right that it's the crowd that doesn't like change, then those who didn't participate in what he has just explained are in fact the crowd, right? The exact opposite people in that society that he's talking about. So any of the royal supporters in France who escaped death are the actual crowd in French, in the French Revolution. Those are the ones who are conservative who yearn for the days of old. So I don't think Gustav hears himself when he writes, you know, especially about the crowd and, and the changed, how they changed their views 180 degrees twice in a few years. You know, no example could better display the tradition on the minds of crowds, the most redoubtable. Redoubtable means resilient to change. I like his writing style. The the most redoubtable idols do not dwell in temples, nor the most despotic tyrants in palaces. Both the one and the other can be broken in an instant. But the invisible masters that reign in our innermost selves are safe from every effort at revolt and only yield to the slow wearing away of centuries. <laughs> it really puts a lot of faith in the uh, genetic dispositions being dominant over learned responses and calculated responses based on the best data at hand. Is this bias valid? Nope. Humans may have a genetic disposition to religion, some more than others, or they may not. I haven't seen cogent science on it seen articles but nothing you know and uh and what exactly does he mean by a religion you know a specific religion or is he talking about his gustavian religion this is what gustav is arguing because he's clearly defined religious beliefs to include the faith of any unproven thing be it theistic or not and he spelled out the beliefs of the french revolution where his uh, non theistic religious beliefs and yet his point that they return to Catholicism kind of refutes his own point. We do seem to have this need to make sense of things we don't understand and just fill the vacancy with some made-up crap placeholder until such time as we have enough evidence either way. The concept of belief limiter is interesting. It is belief limiters that held some people back from believing the world was a sphere or that it orbits the sun or that there are sentience in places that we don't understand. I don't understand my own sentience. How am I to judge others? When we bump into our own belief limiters, we may become obstinate, stubborn, uh, resistant, defiant, emotional, and delusional if we ignore evidence or proofs. It might be an interesting process to ask yourself the limits of your beliefs and what evidence or proof you have for those limits, if any. But you can't be a naive fool and believe everything. We are all somewhere... In the gradient it comes down to judgment the best judgment can be defined as the judgment that gives the best results and later proves to be the most accurate sometimes we won't even know if our decisions or judgment were accurate sometimes we do and realize we are wrong generally the person we hurt the most if we don't admit it is ourselves notwithstanding when we are in a position of authority over others 
or something along that nature. But a lot of our decisions and judgments ultimately deal with ourselves. Sadly, bad judgment doesn't prevent people from being in positions that affect others. We've all come across or heard stories about bad bureaucrats, bad police, bad teachers, bad CEOs, and of course, most politicians. But these belief limiters that we all have, they are there for a purpose, right? And they are determined by the balance of how critical and open-minded we are, but that doesn't mean we can't audit our beliefs. If you read Descartes, you may believe nothing. He famously yanked his his belief uh, limiter right up to, do I even exist? If I can think of that question, I must be thinking. If I am thinking, I must exist. And I think, therefore I am. So we must at least have some control over our beliefs, which is manifested by our judgment. Some believe in extraordinary things. Others do not. If there's no conclusive evidence either way, we are free to say we currently do not know. And if we have to, we may use a model as the most plausible until more evidence arrives. About that, I find it interesting that consistent eyewitness accounts by reputable people is sufficient to convict someone of murder, but not sufficient to indicate there may be a phenomenon in this universe that we currently do not understand when it comes to things beyond our belief limiters. That is by definition delusional. We are ignoring evidence. Uh, Gustav's third point on remote factors that affect the crowd's opinions are, is time. Our time? Maybe there's more than one dimension of time. Gustav claims time is the sole real creator and the sole great destroyer. While that sounds quasi-religious, it is bullshit. Time doesn't care about creating or destroying. It is a dimension. There are other specific mechanisms that create and destroy. We may not know what these mechanisms are depending on the situation, but whatever they are, they don't fit our literal definition of time. Gustav claimed time has made mountains with grains of sand and raised the obscure cell of geological errors to human dignity. Mountains are created by tectonic movement or volcanoes, not by the piling of sand. I guess you technically could. There may be a pile of sand higher than a thousand feet somewhere in you know, in the Sahara or something, but it wasn't created by the dimension of time. It was made by the mysterious properties of physics, energy, from fusion from the sun, and charge, wind, friction, probabilities, and the chaos that exists in the dimensions of time. <laughs> uh, yes, Gustav is using a natural interpretation of time, but that perspective, while sounding poetic, is wrong and misleading. Same goes with his second point, that time has raised the obscure cell of geological eras to human dignity. It, it wasn't time. Time wasn't the mechanism of evolution, natural selection, if, that, if that's even how we got here. Those presses occur, processes occur in the dimension of time. Time is not the mechanism that evolves life, nor is time the same force that creates mountains. Gustav wrote this, this odd sentence. A being possessed of the magical force of varying time at his will would have the power attributed by believers to God. Wow, that's pretty spooky. H.G. Wells published The Time Machine the same year Gustav published this book. Gustav's concept of time is literal as a mechanism and assumed one could control it. A mechanism 
is a process. Processes exist in the dimension of time and space. We might go down the rabbit hole of consciousness existing in the time or in time, not space. Uh, and some neuroscientists argue that it is our consciousness that creates time and space for us as everything we perceive from the most distant galaxy to the Planck length all exist inside our skull as reality is, is actually a hallucination. There's an interesting TED talk on this by a professor of cognitive, uh, whatever, cognitive computational science, neuroscience at the University of Sussex. But, uh, what's his face? Uh, Anil Seth. You could argue that we control time by adding mass or acceleration to a system or even, you know, relative velocity. So maybe a time machine is possible. According to Einstein, we are all traveling through time at slightly different speeds as there is relative motion between us. So there is that. So we are, time is not uniform. If we think of time as a mechanism, then space is also a mechanism. As Einstein said, they are part of the same phenomena. How can distant, uh, be considered a mechanism <laughs> space it's not a mechanism the distance is not a mechanism time is a phenomenon not a process processes occur in time i don't know maybe it's possible for a protest a process process to happen beyond time scattered throughout the space-time continuum if space-time even is a continuum <laughs> jesus Gustav claimed time is responsible for the birth, growth, and death of beliefs, which is bullshit. Instead of saying God is responsible for everything, Gustav simply replaced God with time. How a consciousness perceives and thinks in an unfolding reality in time is responsible for the birth, growth, and possible death of beliefs. Is space even required as a dimension? Consciousness has to exist somewhere, right? I like Rod Serling's model of the dimension of mind. So until I'm exposed to or come up with a better model, that's the one I'm tentatively going with. Is mind, reality, and space only an illusion? Randy Descartes put all his eggs uh, into reality's existence, proved by his mind. He didn't give any proof for the existence of space, only the concept of existence. Since Professor uh, Seth argued, Anil there, that reality is a construct of our minds and exists in our heads from the data of our senses, but those senses exist in our, on our mental construct of reality. Maybe there only is the dimension of mind and this data we receive from our senses is just an, uh, an illusion of continuity. Where is this data coming from? The same place our thoughts and ideas come. <laughs> I don't know. Unknown. Okay, let's get a grip. And use the principle of charity on poor old Gustav and say he meant that beliefs and opinions have a life cycle in which they come and go. Some last longer and some take a long time to form, but eventually they are all replaced. Does that even make sense? I see no evidence to indicate that while some opinions do fade away, others may not last forever. And forever is a long time. Are there limits to time? How did, how did time start? Did time start? God, again, time is not a mechanism that creates beliefs. Perhaps there is some voodoo force of natural selection on opinions and beliefs. To me, it appears to be the process of logic and reason of the individual. I would argue that at some level, we have to think something is reasonable before we believe it, even if our reasoning is flawed. But there are a lot of taken as true beliefs we normally don't question and just believe. Suppose it's heuristics. Maybe there are ways to manipulate people so they don't think reasonably. That's the whole thing, right? They try to bypass reason just to say it's true. 
Believe it. Uh, imperious opinions and beliefs. Gustav's fourth point of remote factors that affect the opinions of the crowd are political and social institutions. Gustav claims oppressive regimes tend toward centralization. I agree with that. Sounds plausible. My perception of history appears to agree with that. <laughs> he refers to the zeitgeist of a nation as the genius of the nation. Genius in this case meaning the prevalent character or spirit of something, such as the nation or age. He used the word chimeric, which means hoped for, but impossible to achieve. So impossible based on what? Someone's belief limits. There are things that are impossible based on our current limits of understanding that later become possible. Are all things possible? Perhaps in time. <laughs> what is an institution? There are three types of institutions. The beliefs, rules, laws, actions of the people, the organizations they create in which some way help others, and a person who is closely associated with a thing. You know, Barb is an institution at that place, whatever, at the cafeteria, right? Uh, I interpret social institutions to be the first kind, the beliefs, rules, laws, and actions. So Gustav claims the idea that institutions can remedy the defects of society and that social change is affected by decrees is generally accepted but a grave delusion and that philosophers and historians have endeavored to prove this absurdity. So he's saying the idea of institutions as in beliefs, rules, laws can remedy the defects of a society is false. He finds a logical flaw in, in that the philosophers and historians have no difficulty demonstrating that institutions are the outcome of ideas, sentiments, and customs and that ideas, sentiments, and customs are not to be recast by recasting legislative codes. A nation does not choose its institutions any more than it chooses the color of its hair or eyes, he claims. Institutions don't create society. The society creates the institutions. Depends. Is it the egg or the chicken? He says this, the institutions. Hey, maybe. Anyways, Gustav sounds a bit like Nietzsche. When he says institutions are neither intrinsically good or bad, they may be good for a people at one moment and be harmful for another nation. Um, so why are we talking about political and social institutions? Gustav claims these are one of the remote factors that affect the crowd's opinions. This is a puerile or childish conclusion that refutes itself. If simply being in a society programmed everyone's beliefs and opinions, then everyone in that society would have the same beliefs and opinions, and there would be no need for laws. The fact that laws are necessary indicate that everyone shares the same opinions and beliefs. Since Gustav believes opinions are created by the society, and societies take a long time to change, he infers that a long time is required to change opinions if they are a result of that society. His reasoning is humorous. It's a uh, build, it's built on unfounded premises, so his conclusion is also unfounded. He reminds me of a child trying to make sense of the world. You know, we've all been there. We're all still there, right? I'm sure there are societal influences that bias the unwary, and at times the bulk of a society may share a false opinion. But clearly, societies are full of people who have diametrically opposed 
beliefs and opinions. And if society and institutions were the cause of our opinions, this would not be the case. If Gustav were to claim social and political institutions have a varying effect on the cause of the opinions of many in that society, I'd have to give it to him. But he can't seem to help himself with overgeneralizations and absolutes. Any of a group of people are not uh, monolithic oneness. This idiotic belief is still pushed today by many diminished minds in academia who mostly impugn the reputation of their field by association, <laughs> which might be their goal if they're cultural Marxists bent on destruction of civilization and their field of study. Affirmations based on unfounded assumptions by the idiots who are supposed to know better are experts. Today, being a recognized expert uh, only means that your opinion is aligned with whatever narrative the political establishment is pushing that day, not based on merit or verifiable expertise in your field. The spineless shitheads in academia are keeping their mouths shut because the funders are telling them to. And the reputation of academia swirls the drain. Mission accomplished. Science is dead. Now, we don't have to use evidence-based data anymore. We can finally go back to bloodlettings and just let the hegemonic 1% do what they want with us and our world. Gustav gets sidetracked with the chicken and the egg of society creating law or laws creating society. Obviously, a society creates their laws and the laws feed back to somewhat steer society, like a, a weed growing it, where it goes, who knows? Natural selection would allow society to go wherever, and if that path is wrong for that environment, that society will die out. If the path is net positive, this society will continue or possibly grow. Granted, everything is dynamic. The, environment, the, the environments change, the people change, the laws change. By environment, I obviously mean the state of technology, education of the people, power structures, access to resources, all, and all that kind of thing. Gustav's point, I think, is that the bulk of the people are not critical thinkers or have the critical spirit, as he calls it, and are oblivious to such things and are therefore his mindless crowd, despite level of education or IQ. Clearly, anyone without the critical spirit, and even those who have it but are unwary, can be manipulated to develop mass psychosis. You might ask yourself, are there malevolent forces that create or steer net negative institutions in a society? This has been done in many centuries in the past, so why not now in our country? Or your country, depending on where you are. There are many books written on how to do it. I've even covered some on previous podcasts. The fact that we might even ask ourselves that question demonstrates our lack of defenses toward these ideological attacks or perhaps our conditioning to not acknowledge the evidence that has flung at us daily. Like all forms of manipulation, not wanting to know about the attacks or seditious activities doesn't protect anyone, except for the evil manipulators. Nations do get destroyed despite all the idiots living in their happy bubble. Are these activities beyond some people's belief limiter, beyond their carefully constructed reality? false reality depending we all tune stuff out i enjoy fast food burgers despite knowing they killed a cow or human or whatever meat they use i should 
open a Chinese fast food place and call it Urger Burger. <laughs> but we all have limits. I don't buy Nike. I don't buy Apple. There are a lot of brands I choose to avoid because they are douchebag monsters. The irony today is woke bigots and their ilk scream about being insensitive, yet they do it on a phone made by a child slave in, in China. So back to societal and political institutions causing opinions of the crowd. Gustav wrote that people are governed by how their character determines they will be governed. This is one of those muddy assertions that are pretty much meaningless. There are rebellions, revolts, and civil wars. And Gustav might just argue that whoever wins are the character that determines how the rest are governed. But what of the other 49% or perhaps majority that doesn't have the resources to win the fight, especially if there's foreign influence? Those who are governed and their character didn't determine it. Sometimes if people don't give up or surrender, they are just overrun and lose. Since we are ultimately talking about the crowd and manipulation and using the principle of charity, he's probably mostly right for a nation not at war. If the character of the people are such that they don't have the critical spirit and are deluding themselves to live in their happy bubble of lies, then yes, that crowd's character are determining how they are governed. The type of idiot that believes reporters, politicians, unquestioningly. Gustav does mention rebellions and revolts. He claims after a rebellion, the institutions remain the same, just under a different name, which is idiotic. Gustav makes a similar proclamation to his earlier one. The destinies of peoples are determined by their character and not by their government. It's interesting wording since destiny means inevitable fate or predetermined course of events beyond human power to control. The force thought to predetermine events, which would mean the character has nothing to do with the destiny of the people, nor does the government if their future is predetermined via destiny, by definition of what destiny actually means. Let's cut Gustav some slack yet again and use the principle of charity and interpret his use of destiny to be a figurative and assume he actually means the future of the people, which is not predetermined by a destiny in which their character might have some agency. But he's not talking about the individual's character. He's talking about an entire people's macro-level assumptions. So Gustav is claiming a government won't oppress a people if they have a really great character. <laughs> It's comical how Gustav is, is conflating power with character and implying that all governments will take as much power as the people will allow, which I guess that's kind of true, that the governments will take whatever power they, the people will allow, which is, you know, it's panning out to be true, but I don't know. Uh, it sounds plausible, but it may not be true. What kind of society would we have if every citizen was viewing everything through the lens of power? Would there be no Teslas, Einsteins? or Hawking's, we'd be living in some post-apocalyptic Spartan prison culture society, some Marxist hellhole, the utopia of globalists and Marxists where there's only power, right? Like a prison. It would be literally a prison. People get shanked and shivved and whatever. Maybe we're already living in that hell and the illusion of this society are just, you know, it's a puppet show, the 1% used to uh, line our cage and keep us subdued. It's the uh, Athenian-Spartan conflict all over again. The, the civilized thinkers against the Spartan savage who uh, focus on power. There are many ways to interpret it. 
Are we the Athenians or are we the Spartans? <laughs> or, or maybe that model doesn't fit. Regardless, a society still has to have sufficient defenses against forces, both internal and external, that mostly focus on power without reverting to a power-focused savage society themselves. Like Mark Twain said, never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. You may not have any choice about interacting with a crowd that is seeing the world through the lens of power and believes that there is nothing but power structures. What a base ideology. And by base, I mean lacking higher qualities of mind or spirit. Base. To survive their duplicitous tactics, their deliberate deceptions, we need a foundational ideological defense. One sophisticated enough to allow us the pursuit of happiness, but also a firewall to keep their scummy viruses at bay. It's not complicated. Simply having a modicum of the critical spirit is enough to block 90% of the garbage. The problem appears to be, as Gustav is crying about, that to have the bulk of society to have even a modicum of the critical spirit is a tall order, especially when the scumbags know this and are actively trying to argue against critical thinking. Hence, all the woke bigotry and clearly irrational insanity in our academia. The antecedentary goal of the manipulator is to have uncritical targets. Antecedentary, the antecedent to their main goals. Antecedentary might be a brand new word. I don't know. But uh, antecedent, antecedent, antecedentary. The pre-goals that come before their main goals. But the goal of the manipulator is to have targets that don't question anything. Gullible idiots. So there might be some super smart psychopaths whose goal it is to deceive a worthy opponent, a Moriarty that seeks to deceive a critical thinker like Sherlock Holmes. Maybe there's a natural progression from grifters to, you know, con men to, to seek higher difficulty marks, you know, to work your way up. <laughs> maybe there's a, uh, maybe it's not the stealing of your wallet. It's the fact they deceived you that gets them off the power dynamics, right? I don't think Arthur Conan Doyle's character Moriarty cared much about the base things as money, but he was out to hunt the mind of Sherlock Holmes. Maybe this was a bit of a warning from Conan Doyle, the arch-villain of the critical thinker is this Moriarty type. Maybe these Moriarty's progress past uh, the Sherlock Holmes and graduate to the bulk of the people. You know, what better grift than to fool everyone out in the open and they don't even know it, right? Given there's apparently over 7 billion people on the planet, the odds are that there are thousands of Moriarty's out there. Perhaps this is just a form of societal natural selection given how complex our bodies are, right? I imagine making a complex social mechanism is well within the realms of natural selection. It appears our society has been conditioned to be blind to ideological attack, perhaps by our own agencies, but this is this this weakness has left us vulnerable vulnerable to attack from any foreign vector. Islamic state globalists, uh, world economic forum scumbags, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, resource-wise, you think the CIA and the U.S. military has the largest resource allocation towards this type of venture. Complex systems, all the above, and more. 
Speaking of the CIA, Gustav argued that institutions don't severely influence the zeitgeist of the masses and cites the USA and Latin America as examples. One prospers while the other does not. The, the masses of Latin America don't respond uh, to these institutions for whatever reason. Before you go blaming the CIA for anything wrong that happened in Latin America, Gustav wrote this like over half a century before the CIA was even formed. However, the familiar names of globalism and their globalist agendas were around in the 1800s, like the John D. Rockefeller, you know, he was born in 1830. So where do they, uh, were they doing their globalist ca- uh, crap back then in Latin America? I don't know. There was a Panama, there was the Panama Canal and uh, ventures like that in the early 1800s, so probably. I'm not saying the Panama Canal is a bad thing. I'm just saying that there is a history of duplicity by corporate interests in the 1900s in Latin America. And I don't know exactly how far back that goes. But these duplicitous actions by the U.S. corporate interests may not have been known to Gustav in 1895. Or perhaps Gustav was a globalist elitist and he knew full well but didn't mention it. Who knows? Gustav claims to impose an institution on a people's is futile and counterproductive unless it is meant to destroy that people. So maybe he did know about globalist interests in Latin America. (laughs) The goal of globalism is, of course, to subvert nations and to take control. So we shouldn't be imposing institutions on a people, according to Gustav. It would appear that imposing foreign institutions destroyed indigenous nations of North America, and the same method was used to destroy my father's nation in Northern Europe by the communist hordes. This is the history of humanity, one people conquering others, natural selection of societies. So if it's not the institutions that influence the crowd, according to Gustav, what is it that's influencing them? He claims illusions and words, especially words which are as powerful as they are chimerical. Chimerical means hoped for but not possible to achieve. The product of an unchecked imagination, a pipe dream, a fantasy, a delusion. We have the four remote factors that affect the crowd's opinions as according to Gustav. His fifth and final remote factor that affects the opinion of the crowd is instruction and education. Of course, instruction and education can condition the opinions of someone and education can be defined in different ways. But the the start of uh, Gustav claims, while it is the dominant belief that instruction is capable of considerably changing men, that is the democratic dogma, which is in disagreement with the psychology and experience. What does he mean, democratic dogma? Dogma about democracies? Why is he conflating instruction with democracy? Perhaps he believes that the idea of instruction is only held in democracies. It's an idiotic conflation, though. Democratic could mean popular, as in of the people. Perhaps they used democratic, you know, in that way, way back then. Today, the communists and Marxists have stolen the word democratic. Whenever you're democratic, the, it pretty much means communist. Then he's probably saying instruction changed people is a popular dogma which disagrees with psychology and experience. Okay, what psychology? What experience? Instruction is the imparting knowledge, the imparting of knowledge to share, to make known, to pass on knowledge. I honestly don't know how Gustav can make such an idiotic claim that instruction can't considerably change someone. I assert that knowledge doesn't have to even be factual to drastically change someone. Just look at all the tricky nerds, you know, at Comic-Cons. 
the knowledge of potential utopias imparted to them by Gene Roddenberry drastically changed them. There are countless nerds who've gone into engineering, computer science, or math because of Roddenberry's sharing of ideas. Granted, ideas and knowledge aren't the same thing. They are more similar than we usually admit, as you know, what we perceive as knowledge today will most likely be overturned as false in the future, like it has so many times in the past. Just as ideas can be wrong, so can knowledge. And in fact, knowledge is just ideas with the illusion of being true. That's my redefinition of knowledge. So I guess knowledge is just a phantom connection. Watch my podcast on phantom connections. They are a critical concept to grasp for any aspiring critical thinker. So back to Gustav and his claim about instruction not changing people. He's saying that people have limitations. Well, which is true. But he argues instruction does not render someone more moral or happier. Morality, Moriarty, morality is not arbitrary when viewed from the perspective of a society. It may be arbitrary if the individual is isolated from all other humans. But once we're among others, there is a potential negative feedback for our survival. If we, be, if we behave amorally, the revenge, you know, through revenge, retaliation, or whatever. But what if you condition the other humans that it is moral for you to behave in such a way that it is not moral for them to behave? You know, class structures. You know, get your uh, get in your pit and work 16-hour days and shut the fuck up while the, we travel the world and have caviar adventures, you know, and, and have a massive carbon footprint. <laughs> we, we could do... Uh, a whole podcast on morality, what it is, and, and the vector of manipulation. Gustav, I actually talked about it earlier, but Gustav claimed instruction doesn't make one more moral or happier. Happiness is subjective, and instruction is passed on as knowledge, not morals, though it can be, and sometimes malevolently, as I alluded to earlier, with being used as a tool of manipulation. Again, I can't help thinking of Mark Twain, how easy it is to make people believe a lie and how hard it is to undo that work again. Or whoever paraphrased him on the internet, it's easier to fool someone they convinced them they've been fooled. Whoever that anonymous person is should have gotten the credit for making Twain newer and better. It's a great quote on its own legs. In 1906, Mark Twain wrote, we are always hearing of people who are around seeking after truth. I have never seen a permanent specimen. I think he has never lived, but I have seen several entirely sincere people who thought they were permanent seekers after truth. They sought diligently, persistently, carefully, cautiously, profoundly, and with perfect honesty and nicely adjusted judgment until they believed that without doubt or question, they had found the truth. That was the end of the search. The man spent the rest of his life hunting up shingles wherewith to protect his truth from the weather. Perhaps this is the uh, the true reason why Twain was put on a banned books list, which I used as a must-read list as a kid. <laughs> Perhaps I got more of my opinions about critical thinking from Mark Twain than I realize, which is the antithesis, antithesis of what Gustav is claiming, that I develop ideas about critical thinking totally independently of the books I read as a kid, Unlikely, but maybe I read them because I was told not to. 
Perhaps that questioning of authority was hardwired into our genes, and this questioning of things, including ourselves, is what leads us to being an advocate for critical thinking. This is what Gustav is arguing. But he goes further. Gustav is arguing from the position that opinions are solely hereditary. He claims instruction does not change instincts, nor hereditary passions. He might be technically technically correct that instruction does not change our instincts, but our behaviors can change and are, and, and are changed by instruction. Just look at the, the disciplined child at a strict school. That's not normal behavior, and it's the result of instruction. Humans have this duality where we reason and control our impulses and instincts in a society or any group. So I'm tempted to call bullshit on Gustav, but I hear Jordan Peterson's squeaky voice saying, lobster hierarchy. <laughs> so, which makes me think it's possible that our social you know, actions are more genetic than I want to believe. But the fact remains that we can be instructed to have different behaviors. But does that instruction drastically change our core opinions? Cults exist. Religions exist. Ideological insanities, uh, insanity exists. We have a genetic predisposition and that clearly can be overridden by instruction or conditioning depending on how you define instruction. Pure instruction doesn't mean conditioning, but conditioning requires instruction as a tool. So we're left with what exactly does Gustav mean by instruction? Since he's talking about changing opinions, we have to assume he's expanded instruction to include conditioning. Conditioning or training is not a conspiracy theory. It's a verifiable thing. So we have no choice but to call uh, bullshit on Gustav here. Instruction can indeed drastically change someone's opinion. An argument can be made here about genetic sus uh, susceptibility to social conditioning versus following our instincts. The funny part is that conditioning makes one feel that we are following our instincts when in fact we are following our conditioning. That's how conditioning works. Of course, it's way more complicated than that. We are entering the realm of behavior versus beliefs. Some people will behave a certain way despite not believing it's the choice or the one they would have made themselves to the point of killing someone, studies have shown. What Gustav is talking about is the ability to condition us to believe that killing the target is the best choice and the one we would have made on our own. Manchurian candidate stuff. What does it take other than convincing someone that they can not only justify their horrible actions, but they are the heroes for doing whatever? I guess it takes conditioning them to be the type of person who would do the act. The veneer of civilization is paper thin. I've heard people who are so concerned about the safety and health of others arguing for an entire group of people to die. The, the, the self-refuting logic is completely lost on their emotional craziness. We've all seen it during this COVID thing with the, the people screaming about anti-vaxxers needing to die, right? These are the Gustavian crowd in modern times. Were these people genetically predisposed to want others to die? Were they punished or pushed by instruction from propaganda to expose that predisposition? Or were they conditioned to become the malevolent, that malevolent towards others? Maybe Gustav is right that our deepest beliefs can't be instructed into us. But the savage of human nature that lies just beneath the veil of civility may be easily to uh, may be easy to access with instruction. Is our character innate? Is it scenario based? I've read a lot of people who believe humans are easy to program, 
That doesn't prove we are, but it's evidence. Gustav takes a bit of a left turn when he claims more instruction. It's responsible for more crime. He makes a classic causation correlation fallacy, citing the increase of both uh, as evidence that one causes the other, which can easily be explained by more plausible theories, like the increase of population. (laughs) The increase of both education and crime and the rate of both remain the same per capita. I'm not claiming that's the case. That's just an equally, if not more likely. And there are oodles of other theories that might be the actual cases. He wrote how schools are transforming the majority of students into enemies of society and recruits numerous disciples from, you know, the worst form of socialism. He wrote that in 1895. Now, if he's talking about universities, yeah, man, the guy's spot on. The flaw in the system, according to Gustav, is the system does not address judgment and personal initiative. Which sounds about right. Gustav uh, quotes this guy, Jules, or Jules Simon, Jules Simon. Learning lessons by heart is a ludicrous form of education whose every effort in an, is an act of faith tacitly admitting the infallibility of the master and whose only results are the belittling of ourselves and rendering of us impotent. That's good stuff. Perhaps the student is being conditioned to not question their instructions. It's there so they can implant irrational garbage into the vacant students' minds. Otherwise, the instructor instructor would have to justify their garbage. A true master would have no problem continuously proving themselves to the students and never tell them to trust them or believe their bullshit on faith, always citing proofs or the reasons why and always encouraging rational debate and questioning. But none of that can happen if critical thinking is compromised. Gustav goes on to say that this education is not merely useless, but detrimental to society, as there are no graduates willing to lower themselves to do actual work. They are narrow-minded, arrogant twits, which generally still holds true today, especially in the social sciences. So what's worse, according to Gustav, is that this group is the crowd that has nothing better to do than revolt. Also sounds like universities today. He rants that it's useless to memorize a dictionary. Beside wondering who would actually do that, Gustav is wrong. Words are concepts, framed and named, buckets. Knowing more words will open our minds to more concepts and literally make us smarter. Broadening our schemata. A creative mind can come up with a great solution, but why reinvent the wheel if other minds have already come up with a lot of great solutions? It doesn't prevent us from still innovating, but allows us to stand on the shoulders of giants and all that Newtonian stuff. Gustav argues for a practical education with only enough theory that is required. This just rubs me wrong and is against learning for the sake of interest. If you as a student are paying for instruction, it should be on whatever the fuck you want. If you want to learn about the limits of our current theories, you should be able to learn about the limits of our current theories. If you want to learn practical things, go nuts. But no one should be limiting what others have access to learn. Even if it's a job-specific program, even then, how could more theory be wrong? Gustav is arguing for limited automatons that can cannot iterate and are unprepared for any changes in the workplace. That's idiotic and it's against uh, beneficial innovation. 
is Gustav arguing that all knowledge can be used for good and evil and that we need to limit that knowledge because humans intrinsically don't have the character to be benevolent with the great power of knowledge? Sounds like it. Then he's arguing for a minority elite to have the power of knowledge to lord it over the idiot and immoral masses. But those elites are the same garbage as the masses and they equally wouldn't have the moral capacity to be benevolent with that great power. In fact, it's less likely. It appears that Gustav is arguing that humans are genetically incapable of handling the great power that comes with great knowledge. If he's right, perhaps this is Enrico Fermi's great filter that will end the human civilization. Our knowledge base is expanding way faster than our ability to control the power. We are the weak men of the Lord of the Rings, the descendants of Arathorn, who was too weak to control the Ring of Power. <laughs> Nerding out here. Perhaps that was the moral token was trying to tell us. I read it, but not in school, so I never really thought about it before. But I got the destruction of the trees and forests. You know, he was bitching about the process and, you know, what we're doing to the wild, right? It's kind of uh, pessimistic to think humanity is incapable of handling power. We don't let kids play with matches unsupervised, but eventually those kids will one day master matches. And let's be honest, as kids, we all played with matches when our parents weren't looking anyways. So I get the point that power of knowledge is very dangerous and should be treated with deep respect, especially in a post-nuclear world. Post-nuclear meaning post-nuclear technology. You know what I'm saying? I don't need to explain it. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> But what would be the best way to prepare society for that massive pending power? Teaching them critical thinking would be number one. But can we teach character to be able to handle that, right? That, that, that power. We, we, we can teach the veil of pseudo character. What it boils down to is who are the ones to say what character should be taught in the first place? Ultimately, natural selection takes control. And there are too many weak humans. We, we can't control everything, nor should we want to. If given the power, even in a tightly controlled, centralized society, some Islamic state type nut or other nihilist you know, weirdo would take it upon themselves to blow up the world to save the world, you know, some form of insanity, which I've heard people say, right? It works only if everyone is for survival of the species. Well, there could be a larger paradigm of natural selection that I am completely oblivious to. In fact, that is absolutely the case as I have no idea how natural selection as an algorithm is implemented or where that information is actually stored. You know, it's, when you start thinking about it, it gets pretty weird. So yes, I know the, the stronger, uh, faster win, and that's not always the case, but there are rules to natural selection and science in general, apparently, which is pretty weird in itself, right? Where are these algorithms? I can't think of a better word, you know, or these rules, where are they stored in, in the universe, right? They're just sort of there, right? They're, they're. They're esoteric, yet they exist. I'm probably uh, looking at it wrong, right? But these these functions of objective reality are definite rules. You, we discover some of them, and there are clearly more than we that uh, that we don't know. 
but it's bizarre how these rules are somehow stored in the fabric of reality in space-time, perhaps somewhere beyond. I don't know. It gets weird. You know, we just start thinking about this too much, so. I don't know. I never really grasped that information theory thing, right? Rules of the universe are not just concepts of the mind. They are actual things that exist, whether we recognize them of, or not. They're still there. The earth was always a ball in space orbiting the sun, regardless of what our caveman ancestors thought. We could debate this, but what else was it then, right? Then we go down that whole Descartes thing of not knowing whether reality is just a construct of the mind. I'm beginning to get beyond the, the scope of this podcast. So uh, maybe we'll get back to Gustav. So regarding his apparent point that humans are not prepared for the, the ring of power, there are two sides to the concept. Like the, the cliche of nuclear technology, we can make bombs or we can make clean energy right? Good or evil with the same technology, <clears throat> depending on how you look at it. In our case, good and evil. We make both yin yang. Right? Gustav counters himself when he wrote about the students thrust into the real world and their mental and moral equal equilibrium is, is being severely uh, affected. He says the, the deceptions have been too great the disappointments too keen. <laughs> so it's the, I guess he's saying the kids experience culture shock when they, when they enter the real world, like where were they before they went to school? But I guess it does affect how you perceive things when you've been brainwashed. Right. So here's how, um, here he's now arguing that the opinions of the students are programmed by instruction which he clearly argued they can't be because genetics dictates our opinions, according to him. <laughs> when we are told of the fairy tales of morality and principles and grow up and realize governments, police, reporters, corporations, churches, etc., don't uphold these principles they claim to, we get pissed. Rightfully so. Gustav wrote, democracy in their speeches but in no wise in their thoughts. <laughs> Is that because we've been conditioned to have those very principles and realize some people don't or are cheaters or because we have those principles and are disappointed in our institutions that don't uphold what we organically believe, what we intrinsically have, our, our values, maybe a genetic predisposition for certain values or not. Or some combination of both. The unwritten social agreements uh, of it, I have to follow these rules. And so do you. And if you don't, I will retaliate, right? Being, you know, generally speaking, the royal eye. Gustav wrote that his, uh, this army of discontented, the students, have become susceptible to the uh, suggestions of utopians and... Uh, rhetoricians, rhetoricians, how do you pronounce it? Rhetor rhetorical rhetoricians, I guess. Some things uh, haven't changed in in 130 years. Those utopians and rhetoricians, rhetoricians? I gotta look, hold on a sec here. Rhetorician. 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 <laughs> 
So, in the UK, rhetorician is pronounced... Rhetorician. In the United States, rhetorician is pronounced... Rhetorician. Rhetorician. All right, I guess I'll pronounce it the American way. Rhetorician. Rhetorician. <laughs> rhetorician. 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 <laughs> uh, yes, I'm laughing at the British. What was I talking about? Um, so Gustav and his army of discontented students have become susceptible to uh, suggestions of the utopians and rhetoricians. Some things haven't changed in 130 years, right? So those utopians and rhetoricians are still around today in the political establishment, which includes news media, corrupted media, uh, corrupted academia, evil NGOs. Perhaps I should just clump them together and uh, call them the perception management establishment or, or the perception management complex. Rhetorician. <laughs> Clearly, we humans have uh, mental limitations, and, uh, and 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 we're we're limited by these limitations, and we can be manipulated by suggestions or controlling our information uh, or instruction. That's what schools are. Obviously, they do something, right? They they must. To what degree an individual's core beliefs can be changed is unknown. And once programmed, uh, can they be uh, unprogrammed? I don't know. Possibly, it seems to be, right? Historical uh, quotes from humanity's great writers of the distant past would indicate it is at the minimum very difficult to unprogram us. What does that even mean to unprogram? Unprogramming requires some form of conditioning. And so now, to what do we condition them to? If they were conditioned or reconditioning them, if, if we somehow cleared their minds and taught them you know, critical thought to the tools for them to think on their own, would they organically just relapse uh, due to the, the mental memory muscle of the wired neurons, you know, as, as the brain has limited neuroplasticity, but it does have neuroplasticity, so you can change it. So I don't know what these limits are. So these are the, uh, or those were the five remote factors that affect the opinion of the crowd. Race, traditions, time, political and social institutions, and instruction and education. The uh, converse to remote factors or factors back in, uh, remote back in time uh, that affect the crowd's opinions would be the immediate factors. So this is exactly what Gustav calls them, the immediate factors. His immediate factors that, he, that affect the crowd's opinions could be interpreted as triggers, right? So he has four immediate factors, four immediate triggers. The first is images, words, and formulas, not formulae, formulas. <laughs> so the second is illusions. The third is experience. And the fourth is reason. Now, he's not talking about valid reason. He's just saying reason. So some uh, mode of uh, interpretation, some uh, pattern of inference. <clears throat> These uh, four uh, Gustav claims are the direct triggers. He claims one of the most powerful triggers is the power of suggestion 
in the form of imagery. But there are many sources of suggestion and the different ways need to be studied. Now, I know power of suggestion works because I felt the effects on me. You see a commercial for a chocolate bar, suddenly I feel like a stupid chocolate bar. Or, you know, see a commercial for fast food and suddenly I feel like fast food. Or, you know, whatever. It's, so I know it works. I know it's there. Now, I don't know if it's me self-fulfilling prophecy of some kind, but the effect is there. So these little oddities are the things we need to take more notice of and examine and pull the thread on them. To me, Gustav using formulas in this context is, uh, what's the word? Vexing. <laughs> Maybe puzzling is a better word. I know formulas to mean like recipes or equations, and, and that doesn't seem to fit in this context. So what does he mean? You know, I noticed Gustav wrote the word formulas and, uh, and mostly ignored it the first time I read it. I sort of glossed over it and then I saw it again and, and then again. And finally, I was, I was motivated to, uh, to research it a little bit and the, the meanings of formula that I currently don't know. And lo and behold, uh, maybe religious people would know this. I don't know, but, uh, formulas are specific litanies of words used in ceremonies or proceedings. Oh, hmm, I didn't never heard that before for formulas, specific litanies of words used in ceremonies or proceedings. So what is a litany? A litany. I thought litany meant a, uh, you know, a long, tedious speech, you know, a litany, right? That's what I, so there was a litany of solutions, you know, a long list of solutions, but litany, it all turns out also means a form of prayer consisting of a series of invocations, each followed by an unvarying response. You know, that really spooky cult shit you hear in some churches when somebody says something in the, 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 the crowd all, Oh, and with you, <laughs> you're like, what the creepiness. So that mindless repetitive chant that literally it spooked the fuck out of me the first time I heard it in the church. I was like, what is going on here? So they are invoking, right? Which means to call to a higher power for assistance or inspiration. We all know to, uh, we know invoke means to bring about or to put into effect. They invoked the draconian emergency measures, which stripped people of all their rights and freedoms because the prime minister is an idiot man child that cannot handle diverse opinions, especially those contrary to his. <laughs> so formulas are like chant prayers or, or mantras invoking a higher power to help mindless repetition being key, I think. If you think about it, we weave illusions about people, organizations, places, places in time and concepts as, as we hear about them. They are illusions. They are not reality. Even if we are partly correct in our thoughts, we do not have an image of a complete person, place or, or thing. Hence the illusion or romance of a place or thing. By romance, I mean a fabricated mental picture of what we think or want to think something is. But the magic is not representing something objectively real. It's like being under the influence of a drug. It's just what we uh, think it is. Well, 
a well-known example of this is the disenchantment most people feel after going to Paris in modern times. They imagine it to be the beautiful sidewalk cafes with enlightened people discussing exciting new concepts in the sciences, politics, and arts. A, a modern-day Athens with modern fashion. fashion. <laughs> but it's not that. If it ever was, we, we all create artificial illusions about every concept we encounter without the feedback of objective reality or paying attention to that feedback, we can be way off of what is true about that thing. And this is where closed-mindedness comes in. People jump to conclusions, they get the mental picture, and that's what they think reality is. So I think it was Gustav who wrote that people only realize how bad their ideologies are once they achieve the goal of that ideology and see how how crap it really is all the things that uh, weren't taking into consideration or were assumed incorrectly you know complex systems right the result of thinking we have a handle on a complex system when we don't and we rarely if ever do the soviet union is a case in point objective reality is a test of your morals power or or ideas maybe so how creative, how accurate your judgment, I guess it'd be judgment. So can a belief be, uh, stably enforced onto someone who is genetically opposed? Genetics might be just predispositions. So if you get them, uh, young enough, right? We've heard this, get them young. You might override, override their hard wiring and force new neural pathways to form you know, and solidify. I don't know, but that's the modus operandi of all cults, religions, and ideologies. Get them young. Gustav wrote about uh, images, and he meant, I think, strong mental imagery. Since we fabricate mental images that are most likely not accurate when we picture things in all their vast complexity, this is a fantastic vector of attack for the manipulator. It's the art of lying. We can be honestly misinformed, interpret things inaccurately, or we can be intentionally disinformed and lied to and deceived. So Gustav writes that the words he means are the words which persuade and give images preferably strong images, strong mental images. And his formula are a combination of logical fallacies that are intended to condition one's response to a subject so that they might have an automatic pre-programmed response that bypasses any thought, never mind critical thought. They just automatically respond. A, uh, a uh, spinal cord type response, a reptilian brain response. So Gustav claims the actual meanings of the words are irrelevant in the hands of a skilled manipulator, a rhetorician, rhetorician, <laughs> where, where was the thing? Hold on. A rhetorician, rhetorician. <laughs> oh, I keep saying Anyways, where was I? So Gustav claims the actual meanings of the words are irrelevant in the hands of a skilled manipulator, a rhetorician. 
rhetorician. <laughs> a, and that the the bones of victims who were duped could make a period loftier than old Cheops of Egypt. That's a quote he says. A pyramid loftier than old Cheops of Egypt. He's claiming that the words that are ill-defined or vague sometimes are the ones that possess the most influence. So vagueness is your friend if you're a manipulator. So by me explicitly clarifying the definitions of some of the words I'm using, I'm being less influential to the mindless crowd. Not to the critical thinker. The critical thinker, I'm being more, not influential, but more informative. <laughs> but if you are a mindless crowd, the more I define something, the less influence I have. Gustav said words, if Gustav is correct. So he said words like democracy, socialism, equality, liberty are so vague. And they're not really, you know, finely defined that tomes have been written and still don't suffice to define them. I think it's because lazy thinkers tend to guess at the definition of a word based on its context, instead of taking the time to look it up or like what happened to me with, you know, formulas. I was unaware of the additional meaning to the word and tried to jam my preconceived limited definitions of the word until I couldn't complete the circle. I couldn't come to terms and make sense of what he was saying. There's something wrong, right? So I took the time to look up all the definitions of formula, and it was a definition which on some dictionaries they totally skip. So maybe it's because he was using an older form of the word. I don't know, but thank God I got a lot of dictionaries. We have many vectors of attack for the manipulator, and using words in a new way or redefining them is a vulnerability we all have, especially if we're too lazy to look up the actual definition, especially when the manipulator redefines the word to mean its complete opposite, doublespeak, Orwellian doublespeak, and we see this all the time today. You may think of words being good or bad. This is a false premise as words or concepts are not intrinsically good or bad. Take the concept of hate. It's a natural emotion that we evolved to have for some reason. It must have been beneficial to us in some way or we wouldn't have it, even if it's vestigial. It was beneficial to our ancestors. It must have been in some way. So I'm conflating beneficial with good. <laughs> this. Right. If someone or group fights or, or, or for something that, you know, goes against our values or core beliefs, we may hate them or it or which is neither, you know, good or bad. It just, it just, it just is. If you have a value set where you don't like torture and suffering and you hear about some group of people that did gruesome things to someone before eventually killing them, you would most likely hate them. Perhaps nature has given us this emotion to enact justice, to keep the peace, to cause us to be vigilantes in the absence of justice. Back in our tribal days before our so effective legal system and police of modern times. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. This instinct towards justice based on our hatred of injustice may be what caused civilization to form in the first place speculation. 
And this sense of injustice is clearly a vector of attack by manipulators. So hatred itself may not necessarily be a bad thing. The thing that, you know, being hated may be a bad thing, as interpreted by the individual at least. Granted, you don't want to let hatred consume you. It hurts you more than them, yada, yada, yada. That chronic hatred may come from justice on the perpetrators never being enacted. Maybe it's there for a reason, or maybe it's a mind cancer wasting years of your life. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> so when you hear a manipulator saying, so-and-so is full of hate, you should ask yourself, are they full of hate? If so, why are they full of hate? What injustice are they perceiving? Is that injustice valid? <laughs> Manipulators rarely use uh, specifics, especially ones that cannot be substantiated. Or especially ones that can be substantiated. They don't want you to substantiate them if they're, if they're wrong, if they give you false specifics, right? So Gustav claims that reason and argument, as in logical debate, are incapable of combating certain words and formulas. So the conditioning is so powerful that even logic and debate, reason and argument can't overcome the conditioning, the brainwash. Again, Gustav is assuming the target is not a critical thinker who is actively being critical of the information being presented to him. But this is how he defines the crowd. So his assumption, I guess, would be accurate. Because if, right, if you are... Uh, being conditioned in such a way, you are not being critical. If you were being critical, you would not be conditioned or you'd be yeah, up for that specific thing. So this is, this is different than intelligence. We've gone over this, I'm sure before, uh, we can be extremely intelligent, but also not critical thinkers, especially if we gained our intelligence from instruction or reading and, and not from experience. Hence the observational difference between book smarts and street smarts. A lot of academics may have advanced knowledge that they are incapable of coming up with on their own. They were taught it. So they just are parrots and mimics and regurgitate something that they've been taught, but they would never in a million years come up with that information on their own. Whereas the street smart kid comes up with a lot of new solutions on their own on the fly. So we all have knowledge that we didn't come up with on our own. That's how humanity is so technically advanced. We pass on knowledge, but apparently not so much the uh, capacity to come up with knowledge. This might be what Gustav was referring to, uh, you know, by your genetics. Some people are maybe genetically predisposed uh, to come up with new knowledge where others are not. So this is how you do X, do X, and I'll pay you. Done. Traditionally, it was the uh, the radical fringe that came up with new concepts in tech. Today, a lot of companies are still reluctant to pay for research and development. You can't measure returns because you don't know if it will take 10 years to come up, you know, with the Eureka moment or 50 years and, you know, what's your return on investment? So I, I could see the logic in them not doing it, but for the long game, they should be doing research and development. Or the government should be paying for it. But then again, the governments are corrupted and, Anyways, so if you if you can make something a little bit faster and more efficient, they can measure that and aim low for those you know types of goals. Play it safe with little return as, as opposed to risk at all and potentially win the world or potentially lose the world. Big risks, big gains, big losses, potentially. Anyways, Gustav claims the way to present manipulative words are formulas. 
or mantras. And they're most effectively, or at the least they are given with, sol- what's he say? Solemnity. How do you pronounce solemnity? <laughs> um, let me see here. Solemnity. 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 Anyway, Gustav claims the way to present manipulative words and formulas or mantras most effectively, or at least they are given with solemnity. 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 Solemn, serious, dignified, composed, in a serious manner worthy of respect. So essentially telling a lie with a straight face. When a reporter acts like what they are saying is true, uh, the gullible targets are most likely to be duped by it. It is fraudulent behavior. It's better for the uh, manipulator when the targets do not understand exactly what is going on, of course. They are more likely to take the manipulator's words, uh, you know, take their word for it. If they can't quite connect the dots, they're like, what's going on? They said it's this. Okay, I'll just I'll just say that, right? I'll agree, which we shouldn't, right? Vagueness, ambiguity, false complexity, convoluted logic, a barrage of odd details will stop the most intelligent mind from keeping up. They will be internally questioning the the odd details while the barrage of more questionable points are fired at them, and pile up as their their mental buffer overruns. So Gustav explains that the, they evoke grandiose and vague images in men's minds, but this very vagueness that wraps them in obscurity arguments adds to their mysterious power. They are the mysterious divinities hidden behind the tabernacle, which the devout only approach in fear and trembling. <laughs> Talk about your pussies, right? I'm not sure I'd say, uh, I'd hope that our society's advanced beyond such a groveling, uh, simplitude, but the fact remains the bulk of society in Canada, at least still believes the lies and deception of the political establishment and the rest of the perception management complex. Gustav has some good points, you know, about the, the transient imagery and power, uh, a word has, for example, today, the word Nazi has almost no meaning as leftist weirdos overused it as a, a simple pejorative for anyone who disagrees with them. The Canadian government of Justin Trudeau is a perfect example of idiots perpetrating this. He called people who protest his tyranny, his, his, his tyrannical mandates as racist and extreme misogynists who take up space and questioned whether they should be tolerated. <laughs> really? And it's, this is, it's, I just find that unreal. At least Trudeau has exposed the myth of equality and compassion for the working class by his government. That is a definite myth. They do not have compassion or want equality for the working class. They want equality amongst the working class, but not between the working class and the elite social ruling class. So Gustav describes how the power of words are to be, are to uh, awaken a response in the mind. If they don't, they have no power. It's simple. They try to equate good things with ideas and 
people they want the targets uh, to like <clears throat> and equate bad things with people and ideas they want the targets to hate you know bang bing bang boom bob's your uncle right so gustav he used the metaphor of an electric bell waking them up I think that's a reference to the Pavlovian response. He wrote that those who still use words that no longer evoke a response do so because it relieves them of the obligation of thinking. <laughs> it's, it's funny because it's true. Right? He claims we are conditioned from childhood with a small stock of formulas or mantras. So we, we know all we need to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to traverse life without the tiring necessity of having to reflect on anything, whatever. <laughs> Yet another Gustavian overgeneralization, we do need to use logical shortcuts to navigate life. We don't have the time to be hypercritical about every aspect of life on an ongoing basis. We have to use heuristics, even a critical, uh, critical thinkers right? we can be defeated by a manipulator and every day it happens just because somebody's a critical thinker doesn't mean that they're using their critical topic if the the uh, if you're put in a proper scenario you know grifter can dupe anybody right give them new information that they have to act on without giving them the proper time to analyze and verify that information so the target makes the most logical decision based on the garbage information that was provided to them by the manipulator, uh, there's grifting 101, right? Uh, Ocean's 11 type stuff, right? Lack of reflection or, or denying the target the capacity to reflect either by restricted time or restricted data or both is a key tool used by cults and other abusive manipulators. Given enough time in a transparent society, all manipulators would be exposed. This is probably the reason why our governments are not transparent. Gustav claims the transitory meaning of a word is the reason why we can never translate the absolute meaning of another language, especially an old or dead language, even one's own language from a few hundred years ago, which sounds plausible to me. I risk misinterpreting Gustav's ideas as they were originally written in French and then translated into English, but this is not new. We all risk misinterpreting what others communicate even today in our own language to us in real time. We don't always get everything accurately. There's a lot of misinterpretations going on. People of the past or another culture experience things we may not have an analogy to today just as we experience things other cultures may not understand. I met an, an American in Ottawa uh, years ago, and he was telling me that since I'm a Canadian, I believed X, Y, and Z, which I called bullshit. <laughs> and he started arguing with me about what I personally believed. It was so ridiculous, I had to laugh in the guy's face. <laughs> he was a complete idiot, and traveling obviously did him no good. <laughs> You would think that is exposure to all these people, you know, but no, he was telling me what I believe, right? So, although I'm not saying that's all Americans, I'm saying that was that one specific American. So don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing Americans. I'm bashing that one guy who happened to be an American. I've also uh, 
talked with Canadian friends who uh, and family who've argued that all Americans believe X, Y, Z, to which I say there are over 300 million Americans that can't all have the same beliefs, clearly. And if they did, they would be living in some utopia. Right? And there's conflict. Conflict because people don't have the same beliefs. And they don't know how to deal with people who don't have the same beliefs. So as with everything, uh, culture is unique to each individual. We sometimes try to stereotype people of this culture or that, but everyone who partakes in Thanksgiving dinner should see that culture is a gross approximation. Each individual sees everything different. It's, it's wrong to stereotype everyone who partakes in Thanksgiving as anything other than people who gather and eat at that date. That's it. Nothing else can be determined by that. Not their religion, not their opinions, not their ethnicity, nothing. People might be thrown into a cultural category, but that category does not define them unless that individual has so little character that they are one-dimensional and define themselves based on the arbitrary category that others have made in order in order to stereotype them, right? So, oh, I'm so dumb, I'll take you say I'm this, okay, that's what I am, I'm going to dress and act that way, right? So Gustav is guilty of using the logic of stereotype and overgeneralization. He argued that we can't judge other cultures either in time or place for their values and institutions and cited the ancients values and institutions that required slavery to exist. That is a stereotype of all people of that time to be advocates of slavery, which history tells us is clearly not the case. Not everybody of that time was pro slavery, especially the slaves, right? I would argue that his elitist views are those specifically that allowed slavery or, you know, or to capitalize on it. The separation of the elites from the masses, right? The dehumanization of the masses by the elites, the categorization of humans into categories and classes. Perhaps Gustav is referring to elites as the people that we shouldn't be judging for their views on slavery. Maybe that's what he's saying. Even then, we know there were wealthy people of power and means who were against slavery. I'm not talking about just plantation owners, which some people seem to have a chip on their shoulder about today. I'm talking about the Romans, the Muslims, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Aztecs, the indigenous North Americans. They all had slaves all had the elitist views of one group being superior to another. Slavery is still happening today in modern times. My own mother was an indentured servant as a child in Canada. She had to work for her room and board until she, until she was old enough to move out on her own. This is Canada. There is still today slaves being bought and, and sold in North Africa, in Haiti, and I'm sure probably elsewhere, probably in Canada, right? There's definitely some voodoo going on in China with, you know, organ harvesting and slave child labor, you know, making running shoes and cell phones from woke corporations that tell us how bad we are, right? The, the irony is the Marxists think that they are above this when they are the worst perpetrators. They categorize humans into pigeonholes like they have a, a fever that compels them to. 
the power of Karl Marx compels you. Right? Some communist exorcism happening. Anyways, Marxists all share the anti-rational bend because if they didn't, they would immediately see how irrational their ideology is and therefore no longer be Marxists. Marxism is therefore the filter that holds back the rationally compromised. It's nature's way of flagging the idiot filtride or, or irrational residue from society. <laughs> so there's, there's a beneficial purpose to Marxism, the acid test for stupidity. The problem is when that idiot filtride achieves critical mass and only a few drops of clear rational minds pass through the filter. All they need to do to pass is to embrace reason. Gustav argues that the crowd are idiots. If we define the crowd to be non-critical thinkers, he looks right. But are these people truly idiots? You know, we would have to assume they are ignorant of the concepts of critical thought, logic, and reason, or believe they are following a limited definition of those concepts. I believe most humans have the capacity to properly reason given all the necessary concepts to do so. Of course, there are outliers, people with severe mental impairment, as mentioned earlier, Marxists. So what are the factors of reasoning? There's critical thought, but there's also judgment, character, situational stressors like time and fear of, of pending danger, either real or imagined. There's also the uh, digestibility of concepts. If it's a massively complicated thing, we eat the elephant one bite at a time and eventually reason it out unless we are overrun and, and jam uh, using heuristics. There's also that, uh, that game theory crap and, and apparently uh, infinite methodologies to problem solving and reasoning. It's like math. If, if you know a method to solve a problem, it's easy. If you, if you don't, you might be able to reason it out using the limited tools that you have, or maybe not. You know, I, I had this calculus teacher, uh, Mr. Eller, who broke down math into tools or buckets, right? Um, we frame and name the tools we had. We call those, you know, like routines when we, we needed to eat the elephant one bite at a time with each step being very easy, like riding a bike up an incline in first gear. Small steps, easy, up you go. So what are the different ways we know to do this? What are the different ways we know to do that? So I agree with Gustav that the crowd, uh, his crowd are idiots, but in that sense, we are all idiots. None of us know everything. The masses aren't uh, the crowd to be scorned, the Gustavian crowd. There are others just like you and me who don't yet know some of the basics of reasoning. They're in a different part of their journey. While academia is conditioning students against reason, we need some way to counter that. And the first step is recognizing that. I know it's, it's not that most parents are too lazy to teach their kids things. The parents, a lot of the times, don't have time. They work. They're tired when they get home, and I would guess that the bulk of parents are clueless to even the basics of critical thought, right? How, how do we even evaluate our own judgment in a complex system where the same choices give radically different results? We're entering the realm of chaos theory. 
Why aren't the basic concepts of critical thinking known to all by an early age? Our society has been around long enough, and there are those who know better in positions of, of effect or power who could, who could have brought this about. But what we are seeing in schooling is instead the embracing of woke bigotry and rejection of objective reasoning. The, the growth of the old-fashioned, outdated, stale Marxist filtride, it is getting bigger. Or perhaps I'm just noticing it more as I gain more life experience, or perhaps both. We know there are malevolent factors, malevolent forces, uh, you know, financially paying for Marxist ideology in Western culture today. But where are the benevolent forces standing against it? Could it be that there are just too many ignorant people in the crowd that don't even want to know to think clearly and a minority of elites that have a grasp on critical thinking, you know, have given up on them and are treating them as Gustav says, as they deserve to be. Uh, where are the benevolent forces for critical thought and sound judgment? In all my years of schooling, I don't recall ever being taught about critical thinking. My, the closest I recall is being taught about paradigms, like the scope of systems, micro, macro. Most, if not all of what I know about critical thinking, I learned on my own from books I read from banned book lists. <laughs> so if the masses are, uh, are given up on, if that's what happened, at what point do you stop trying to force the horse to drink from the stream? It would appear those who do know better might have realized that while it's not better for all, it's better for the 1% elites if the masses remain ignorant of critical thought, logic, fallacies, etc. Pump the idiot masses with Marxism as it's a great indicator, <laughs> you know, a clear metric of how uncritical the people are with the added bonus that the ideology is the most detrimental to their freedom and power as individuals. It's, it's as sinister as the Bible causing people to self-police their thoughts for fear of retaliation from a vengeful God. This is religious brainwashing 2.0. Gustav is right about calling it a, a religious way of thinking, despite it having nothing to do with God's. It's clearly not just that people don't know they're being manipulated. They don't seem to care. Apathy might be a result of conditioning, but on such a macro level, I don't know. It seems too far. Perhaps there's a, a natural predisposition for hierarchy, uh, like a, um, what's his face there, Jordan Peterson's lobsters, and now artificial uh, predisposition for subservience through generations of killing off the, the rabble rousers who would stir up the idiot masses. It's interesting that there's a, an implied negative connotation to rabble rouser when rabble means the lowest class of people and rouse means to awaken, excite, or stir up. Why don't we look at rabble rousing as a positive thing? You don't want to stir or wake up the lowest class people, right? Slavery. We need to keep the rabble placid and not stirred up. Who is exactly this we, right? Clearly the elites, because the rabble certainly do not want to be the rabble, I would assume. These expressions reek of the British 
castes of the last few hundred years, that elitism that is obviously not gone today. Look at the UK. They still have the inbred blue blood royal retards as their highest caste. It's idiotic in this day and age, anachronistic. Maybe Gustav is right about the nations changing at a glacial pace, despite all reason. It doesn't seem to be that once a grift is pulled on the people by a group claiming authority over all, that the people eventually recognize the grift and then fight it. They seem to embrace it and then all get in line, counter to intuition, 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 unless we look at it from the perspective of Jordan Peterson's lobsters. The masses want to be led. They want a leader, even if that leader is a piece of shit retard as seen by the drastic and sustained inbreeding of the royals, the the Habsburgs, (laughs) their line died out because they were literally too inbred to breed. Charles II, the last Habsburg, the king of Spain, once I was the king of Spain, was so inbred that he had, he, he he was more inbred than if his parents had been brother and sister. <laughs> this is, that is inbred, man. Charles was so deformed and ugly that his own wife was repulsed by him and his single shriveled blackened testy was not sufficient to produce an heir. That poor woman. Natural selection, pruning the branches here, <laughs> I think. Thank God, right? Religions, cults, and ideology, no matter how irrational, can last generations. Gustav mentions the clear hierarchy of loyalty of serfs as programmed by their masters. We've heard God, family, country, right? This is a social conditioning. Or in China, party, leader, country, right? We never hear a, uh, a CEO list their hierarchy of loyalty because we already know what it is. It's me, 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 or, or power, me, money, right? Regardless, Gustav claims what is critical to know is the meaning, imagery of a word today, which may not be what you or I think it is, but what the crowd thinks it is. How do we find out what the crowd thinks it is? Today, the meanings of words are changed by the class of manipulators. The new meanings are changed at will by dictum. Usually, the new definitions aren't given until after the new narrative using them has been released. Then when challenged, the manipulator pulls a Martin Bailey and clarifies the redefinition of the word so their insane narrative makes sense. This redefinition of words is a tactic in a larger strategy of deception and conditioning. The redefinition of words is a defense and offense. In traditional debate and communication where no deception is intended, the definition of all words is agreed upon in advance. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Holy shit. Journalists actually agreeing to the definition of a word before they use it. So anyone using fabricated definitions of a word without explicitly clarifying them is intentionally being deceptive. 
Right. Maybe not every single, obviously, because we're not always defining our words, but you know what I mean? In certain situations when they're using a bogus definition of a word, when they don't define it, right, they've redefined it and not give you that redefinition, then they are intentionally being deceptive. Also, just creating bogus definitions of a word in no way makes that concept valid or true. And the recycling of words, especially to their antithesis, is a method of erasing that concept from our collective mind, the Orwellian doublespeak. Yes, words naturally evolve and can become the antithesis of their meaning due to sarcastic use, but that's organic. What I'm talking about is the intentional deception, typically by the filthy Marxist filtride. Gustav referred to this as being clothed in new words. Specifically, he said, in clothing with new words of the greater part of the institutions of the past. That is to say, in replacing words evoking disagreeable images in the imagination of the crowd by other words of which the novelty prevented such evocations. So to create new positive euphemisms from old words that were viewed as negative and new disparagements for old words or concepts that were viewed as positive that the manipulator wants to go away. A contemporary example would be in Canada that people would never have agreed with the utter violation of charter rights and, and due process. But the idiot Prime Minister Justin Trudeau simply redefined all peaceful, legal protesters of his tyranny as terrorists and enacted emergency measures. And the critical mass of idiots, the Gustavian crowd in Canada's general public, amazingly went with it. The bulk drank that, that the clearly tainted Kool-Aid, or at least did not speak up against it, as it was only a minority of the population you know, that rose and continued to protest against him. I imagine there are many who disagree and are vocal uh, who aren't protesting and still others who disagree but keep it to themselves. These complex realities of crowd behavior are known well by the perception management complex. <laughs> Gustav wrote, The power of words is so great that it suffices to designate in well-chosen terms the most odious things to make them acceptable to the crowds. Make bad things palatable and good things we don't want to taste bad. So let me, I don't know, I, I don't know if I said that clearly enough. So to make things, make bad things palatable and good things, the, the, uh, the, the, the manipulator doesn't want to taste good to taste bad. To clarify that a little bit. So I'm trying to be critical of Gustav's assertions from 130 plus years ago. But it's hard when at some level they still ring true given the idiotic crowds of contemporary Canada. Gustav called this the art of advocates and their power is the science of employing words, rhetoricians. It's truly amazing how such blatant and idiotic attempts to control the narrative by Trudeau apparently work uh, on the people, on, the, on a good chunk of them. It appears to be people I talk to. Gustav claims words have different or even opposite meanings to different people. Democracy means the subordination of the individual to the collective in some countries, 
whereas others, especially America's, see democracy to mean the freedom of the individual. So this explains why so many leftists use the word democracy in their organizations. They don't view it with the same meaning. The far-left weirdo party in Canada is called the New Democratic Party. The, the Marxists uh, that hate individual freedoms. <laughs> so even the Democratic Party in the United States is now like a, uh, it's a Marxist entity that hates individual freedoms. In reality, reality, everyone having a say is power to the individual, but also subordination to the will of the majority of the collective. The problem with this system is when the masses or a critical mass are ill-informed or disinformed and manipulated then we have tyranny of the masses or tyranny of whatever complex manages the perception of the masses people are the power like a bull but ultimately those who control the people's perceptions have the power like the plowman pulling the bull's nose ring in a perfect world the state is subordinate to the people and the mechanisms of propagation of information decentralized. There is a window right now with the internet of <clears throat> decentralized information, but I think it's rapidly closing. In Canada, there's a bill where they want to control everything, and it's I think it's called Bill C-11. Uh, there are those who fight for mechanisms of decentralization. I don't know the, how many, and uh, there are... They are a virtual underground of free think, uh, the free exchange of ideas. So Gustav's first immediate factor of the crowd's opinions was images, words, and formulas or mantras. His second immediate factor is illusions. Gustav claims that since the dawn of civilization, crowds have always been susceptible to the influence of illusions. And it is to the creators of illusions that more temples, statues, and altars have been created than to any other class of man. I would argue that it's not to the creators of the illusions the monuments are made, but to their creations, their grand illusions. They might take pride in the monuments and even take credit for them if they live long enough. But it's not the creators of the illusions that people pray. It is to their illusions to their creations, to the mysterious divinities hidden behind the tabernacle, which the devout only approach in fear and trembling, to relieve them the obligation of thinking. <laughs> so Gustav wrote, wrote, Gustav wrote that it's religious illusions, philosophical or social illusions that are always found at the head of civilizations. The key word here is illusions. It's interesting how some find it, it's so easy to dismiss the god of Zeus or Apollo or the gods of some remote savage tribe, but less so of the Jewish god or Jesus, which is odd because technically one is just the god uh, of the tribe and the other was a probable shyster grifter con man with delusions of grandeur if he even existed <laughs> the, you know the seminal jesus complex ground zero <laughs> right? though i find it hard to believe there weren't other jesus before that the plural of jesus jesus i don't know everyone's a prophet there were 
uh, other Jizai with similar backstories, born of virgins on December 25th, performed miracles, were carpenters, suffered for others, uh, etc. You know, we have Horus, Addis of uh, Phrygia, Zarathustra, uh, Glycon, uh, Heracles, the son of Zeus, Dionysus, Romulus, uh, Odysseus, Krishna, and that guy from the market square who yelled through a megaphone that everyone was going to burn in hell unless they give him money or whatever he was screaming about. Isn't it that, well, I guess he, he wasn't before, he was post, so the rest were before. Right, so I got to be specify that. So it's it's odd that I can criticize all religions. Isn't it odd that I can criticize all religions except for Islam? I can insult the Old Testament and not be called an anti-Semitic. <clears throat> I can crap on Buddha and nothing. But if I dare say anything about Islam, I'm an Islamophobe. What an idiotic, made-up word. Phobias are irrational beliefs, like clinically, and Islam is the ideology of global submission to their ideology. And who would be cool with that? Call me what you will. And if it's a clinical phobia, how dare someone use your clinical phobia as a pejorative? <laughs> right. So some people find it easy not only to dismiss others' gods and prophets, uh, but philosophies and values of other cultures, but not their own. Or conversely, there are people, there are some freaks that hate and dismiss their own culture, which appears to be unnatural. Perhaps these freaks are a force of natural selection to pick at the cultural's integrity to find its weakness. Like mindless robotic spiders picking away at the wall looking for loose stones which may then be shored up or ignored, allowing the vulnerability to be exposed by malevolent forces. <laughs> Supposition. Gustav, in his fashion, claims there is not one of our political, artistic, or social concepts that is free from the powerful impress of an illusion. Noam Chomsky wrote a book called uh, Necessary Illusions. It's been around uh, 18 years, I think, since I read that book. But I think that's the book where he may, he rambles on about Vietnam like an idiot. The point was supposed to be how the political establishment used propaganda to distort the priority of issues and distracts the idiot masses from major issues to maintain the confusion and keep them off base, thereby blocking democracy from being beneficial to the masses. Now that uh, piece of shit Chomsky's pinko assholes are at the helm of the political sphere, they don't want people to read his or anyone's books anymore as we will uh, see the bullshit that they're pulling on us. So their tactic uh, is to claim reading is a construct rooted in white supremacy and that creating heteronormative capitalist patriarchy and the, the idiotic claim that is supposed to stop us from reading, you know, I'm all for heteronormative capitalist patriarchy. Right. So Gustav claimed it's catastrophic when people overthrow the grand illusions of their society, and they usually end up setting up those same grand illusions again. He cites France and Catholicism. So according to Gustav, the present day woke bigotry movement is doomed to failure. The question now is how many decades of needless destruction will the woke bigotry movement create before its pending destruction? 
Gustav does not give a specific reason why, but asserts societies depend on their grand illusions to exist. The foundation of our society is justice and property ownership. Is ownership an illusion? This gets to the meat of ideas from such people as Hitler, who wrote about this and claimed the ultimate reality in this world when it comes to property ownership is that might is right. If you don't pay your taxes, the state will use physical might to remove you from your property. So in that sense, he's right. Is Gustav then right that property ownership is an illusion? I guess it depends on how much might you have and that depends on how many people support you. <laughs> and that depends on perception management and people swayed by the truth. History has shown us that the, uh, the truth doesn't have any more influence than a believable falsity does. What does care about objective truth is objective reality. Reality is not fooled by believable falsities. If a bridge looks good but isn't, it will fail. Gustav's claim that there is not one of our political, artistic, or social concepts that is free from the powerful impress of an illusion is plausible but baseless. Why couldn't there be a political, artistic, or social concept that is free from illusion? Perhaps he's claiming that our political, artistic, and social concepts are so complex that the probability of all their subcomponents being free from illusion is unlikely. While illusion does have a meaning that is deception, it also has a meaning that is just erroneous perception of reality, an erroneous, erroneous concept or belief. Given that we are not omniscient and do not know everything, it goes without saying that we have erroneous concepts or beliefs. So our schemata are surrounded and pocked with illusion. How can an artistic concept be erroneous? I suppose the artist being human does not have a perfect and true interpretation of objective reality. So therefore cannot make a concept that is without error in regards to being objectively true and accurate in all respects. So it, it's, it's possible that this is what Gustav means, but here I'm connecting his dots, which is never a good sign when it comes to manipulation. Gustav's words at times are poetic. He has a way, which is sometimes enjoyable to read. But as he himself claimed, there is not a single artistic concept that is free from illusion. Therefore, even Gustav's writing is not free from illusion, according to Gustav. So about our society's necessary illusions or errors of perception or erroneous beliefs and concepts, Gustav wrote, doubtless they are futile shadows, but these children of our dreams have forced the nations to create whatever the arts may boast of splendor or civilization of greatness. Well, then they aren't futile, are they? <laughs> I suppose futile in terms of getting to the truth. Um, there's a passage Gustav wrote that uh, I'm going to read it. So. Here we go. The philosophers of the last century devoted themselves with fervor to the destruction of religious, political, and social illusions on which the forefathers had lived for a long tale of centuries. 
By destroying them, they have dried up the springs of hope and resignation. Behind the immolated chimeras, they came face to face with the blind and silent forces of nature, which are inexorable to weakness and ignore pity. Notwithstanding all its progress, philosophy has been unable yet to offer all the masses any idea that can charm them. But as they have their illusions at all cost, they turn instinctively as the insect seeks the light to the rhetoricians who accord them what they want. Not truth, but error has always been the chief factor in the evolution of nations. And the reason why socialism is so powerful today is that it constitutes the last illusion that is still vital. In spite of all scientific demonstrations, it continues on the increase. Its principal strength lies in the fact that it is championed by minds that are sufficiently ignorant of things as they are in reality to venture boldly to promise mankind happiness. The social illusion reigns today upon the heaped up ruins of the past and to it belongs the future. The masses have never thirsted after truth, preferring to deify error if error seduce them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. Gustav's words strike a chord, uh, though a pessimistic one. Yes, it's just more assertions from Gustav. Perhaps I'm conditioned a certain way that biases me, but that passage still resonates uh, with me 130, 140 years after he wrote it. I know there are things we want to believe that may not be true, just like there are things we don't want to believe that are true. We have to be willing to accept the possibility of both. There may be other combinations that I currently can't think of, well, of course, there are things we want to believe that turn out to be true and things we don't want to believe that turn out to be false. But those don't take any mental energy to accept those possibilities. Our wanting to believe or not believe something has no effect on its being true or false. But that is also not quite true. Believing you can make a basket or succeed in business or whatever is an effect. What did uh, Yoda say? Whether you believe you can or not, you are right. Or was that Henry Ford? It appears belief may have some impact on outcomes, but there may be a fine line between belief and delusion. If two fighters both believe they're going to win, neither are deluded until after the fight. <laughs> deluded just means believing something false. Well, it doesn't just mean that. It also means you ignore evidence contrary to your belief. So how does that work with probabilities? I guess being deluded is just ascribing a higher probability to something than it warrants. Delusion is just an error of given uh, the odds. The error could come not from weighing all the available evidence critically, which is pretty much the definition of delusional, uh, ignoring, you know, valid evidence. The point that Gustav is supposed to be making, I think, is evidence for his immediate triggers of the opinions of the crowd 
and uh, perhaps I'm missing it, but how are the illusions that society is built upon him an, an immediate factor in the opinion of the crowd? Does he mean the, the evocation of grand illusions as an immediate factor in the, in the crowd's opinions? He cites socialism and French society was not founded on socialism. So he must mean a contemporary grand illusion. The foundation for all socialists, uh, socialist rebellions is a grand illusion. <laughs> so Gustav's first two immediate factors that affect the crowd's opinions are images, words, and formulas and illusions. His third immediate factor is experience. Experience and objective reality can destroy theoretical delusions that have become dangerous. But according to Gustav, it is necessary that the experience take place on a large scale and be very frequently repeated. Frequency and repeated are redundant. And putting the word very in front, <laughs> right? Gustav really wanted to underscore the importance of repetition. I'm assuming, which is interesting because as we know, it takes repetition to brainwash someone or even train a dog. Here, Gustav is telling us it takes repetition to remove the fog of delusion too. Sort of what we were referring to before about how do you de, you know, uh, deprogram somebody. You have to reprogram them with something new, right? So you're still conditioning them. Uh, once a boxer loses, uh, does he still believe he can win the fight? Perhaps he still may believe that he can beat his opponent in a rematch and that, you know, many losses are required to break him of that delusion. I don't know. Depends on the situation, depends on the person, right? Even if that scenario is plausible, clearly not all levels of delusion are equal. Some may only require one freight, one freight, one fight to break their fog of delusion. Others may never break it. They may always think, oh, it was a bad judge or whatever, right? I should have won. Regardless, Gustav is claiming that it takes repetition to break delusions, which sounds plausible. But there are many other mechanisms to get a mind to start thinking more critically and accepting of viable evidence. Perhaps that delusion is necessary in some situations. Now we're getting into the realm of bravery in the face of probable defeat and the character required to rise up to that apparent unsurmountable challenge. This is different from winning at all costs, though it can play a part depending. We need to be very careful uh, about what we repeat often, if it has this power, what mantras we say or as Gustav calls them, formulas. We need to be aware that what we think we know right now may only be the best plausible and tentative model. It may not. There might be better. The experience of one is only theory to someone else. And if that experience goes against someone's belief, they may, may uh, erroneously disbelieve it, even if it happened to them. I don't remember if I already talked about this, but years ago, a few friends and I witnessed this orange orb, uh, uh, an orange light thing uh, floating about 30 feet, cruising over the treetops. It was heading north. Uh, what surprised me the most was the reaction of my colleagues. Despite not having an idea of what this thing could possibly be, 
they were disinterested and dismissed it. And I was like, what the fuck? How could you not even be curious about what this unknown orb is floating over the trees, right? Perhaps this experience went against their beliefs and uh, they mentally didn't know how to deal with it, but they just dismissed it. I don't know, but there, it was the response that I found even more bizarre. I think probably it might have been a Chinese lantern. I don't know, right? But anyways, Gustav claimed the experiences of one generation are, as a rule, useless to generations that follow. That is why history repeats, and that is why one's experience is another's theory. This is clearly an overgeneralized claim by Gustav, or perhaps he was making a joke. I'm not sure. We still recognize the experiences of scientists and writers from centuries ago. I'm finding use in Gustav's writing, which refutes his claim that I would find his experiences useless. Even though I'm sort of being critical of him, I'm still finding some value in it. Perhaps I'm being too liberal with how I'm using the word experience, but I don't think so. Our society is standing on the shoulders of Newton's giants. He said that expression. So, you know, we see further and, uh, and I'm standing on Gustav's shoulders to see that little bit further into the crowd. It's a complex system with a lot of error in the, in, in the, uh, in the data stream. But until COVID, the world was progressing. We were able to pull up a lot of signal out of that noise. But now the noise floor has drastically grown and it's much harder to hear the signal as this appears to be by design, which does not bode well. Experience is a great teacher and destroyer of the fantasy and romance of a thing. As a kid, I always wanted to be a pilot. So when I got old enough and had enough money, I took ground school and started flying airplanes. It was fun, but not as fun as I thought. And once the novelty wore off and it just didn't justify the expense of time, and money, my resources. The same with golf, scuba diving, and even riding a motorbike, but I still flip-flop on the motorbike. But So to be fair to Gustav, he probably was referring to experience on a macro level, like the generation that suffered through communism in various countries. Gustav's claim is the warning from those experiencers falls on deaf ears which is probably the case on a macro level. So Gustav's fourth and immediate, fourth and immediate factor is, that affects the crowd's opinions is reason. Despite his claiming that reason has no effect on the crowd. So <laughs> earlier he said that, do you remember? Anyway, so what does, he, what does he claim? Well, it sounds like a joke. He wrote, in enumerating the factors capable of making an impression on the minds of crowds, all mention of reason might be dispensed with were it not necessary to point out the negative value of its influence. <laughs> so he's saying reason not only has no effect, if it does, it has a negative effect. Uh, so it pushes, uh, reason pushes the non-critical idiots away from it like vampires from the daylight. He writes that crowds can't be influenced and are only capable of comprehending rough and ready associations of ideas. And this is why orators appeal to emotion and never to reason. 
or today why there was so much emotionally based fear porn in the news media instead of facts. He goes on to explain that pre-made speeches have a much uh, weaker effect than live ones that that deviate based on the feedback from the crowd. Uh, Today, it is uh, rare to see willy-nilly unscripted uh, live speech feeding back from the crowd. It's it's 100% prepared speeches, one-way discourse, broadcasts with minimal, if any, feedback. Though live streams may bring that liveness back. Gustav claimed that if any orator follows his own line of thought, not that of his hearers, and from this fact alone, his influence is annihilated. Like this is, he's got to be making a joke, right? He, uh, how could you even know what the crowd wants to hear in real time? Is Gustav implying that we are clairvoyant and can read the minds of the mindless crowd? (laughs) Right? There'd be nothing to read, right? (laughs) This guy's got to be joking. So Gustav clearly is aware of the power of suggestion and the power of propaganda and telling the crowd what to think or want. Hitler, you know, apparently read this book and was a master orator. Apparently he could go off for hours. Perhaps he developed this skill of appealing to the emotions and and changing what he was saying based on the feedback from the crowd. I don't know, but what would you be using to feedback from the crowd? Their their applause? I don't know. That is it's just it's an on-off thing, right? Either they agree with it or they don't agree. I don't know. Gustav wrote how the orators who use the logic of syllogisms are always surprised by the ineffectiveness of logic on the crowd. He quotes a logician about how the logic would enforce the ascent of even an ignorant mass were it capable of following associations of identities. Gustav laughs the logician off with, This is doubtless true. But a crowd is no more capable than an inorganic mass of following such associations, nor even of understanding them, if the attempt be made to convince by reasoning primitive minds. Savages or children, for instance. (laughs) The slight value possessed by this method of arguing will be understood. (laughs) So, come on, man. I, I have to call Gustav, you know, here. Uh, I've always tried to explain things to my daughter using logic and reasoning, and she not only appeared to understand, she's way more smarter than I was at her age. So regarding savages, I would have to define exactly what he, or he would have to define exactly what he meant by savage. So I love uh, Gustav's line. It's, it's not even necessary to descend so low as primitive beings to obtain an insight into the utter powerlessness of reasoning when it has to fight against sentiment. <laughs> so, so by sentiment, Gustav means emotional opinion, right? An, an opinion based on emotion. We need to understand that as humans, our emotions, like our memories, are often wrong. We are not precisely accurate creatures. That's why a short pencil is better than a long memory. Despite Socrates arguing that writing things down will weaken our memory, he might have been right. There may be studies on how valid Socrates' claim is about memory, but it makes sense that memory is a skill that may be strengthened with use. Uh, 
just as there appear to be some who have genetically superior memories, eidetic memories or whatever. Like that actress, uh, what's her name? Mary Lou Henner with her super memory. Uh, but does reason have an effect on the opinions of the crowd? Gustav argues that because of the atrocities committed on behalf of religion and other ideologies, that everyone's reasoning was diminished as no one speaking up against it is evidence. Hmm. Which is a bogus claim as those being persecuted were the people with reason who did speak up against it and hence their persecution. You know, and how are atrocities in the name of some ideology a vector of diminishing reason other than the targeting and killing of those with reason who speak up against it? That would also require the killing off of their genetic line too if we're to assume the reason is a genetic thing, which we know it's not like anyone can be taught reason and logic. Whether they chose to choose to uh, implement it or not is another thing. Look at today. Uh, there have been many people who speak up against the non-science and propaganda claiming to be science of forcing people to inject a drug we do not know the adverse long-term effects of since there are no long-term studies. In the future, people might ask, where was the resistance? Well, today we see the resistors being deplatformed and fired from their, their jobs for questioning and speaking publicly out against it. I'm sure there was resistance way back in the day too for other similar things. It's not the, the outliers, it's the critical mass, the crowd, or at least the perception of what the crowd thinks that is being propagated today by the political uh, establishment, the perception management complex. Though there have been studies that show a vocal and active minority can be the tail that wags the dog. This is a vector that Marxist radicals appear to be using. We could perhaps create a vocal and active group that pushes for logic and reason, but according to Gustav, this will not work precisely because we are using logic and reason on a Gustavian crowd. Hmm. So there's a bit of a snag there. Is there a place where we use tools of manipulation to make the masses see reason? Hmm. This is probably the thinking that is used to justify the actions of newsrooms and PR firms today. I doubt it. There's responding to their puppet masters. So I don't think there's any thought going in at their executive level, or perhaps their ideology is such that there is nothing but power and the, uh, these moral dilemmas that I'm quibbling about are non-existent in the Marxist mind. Gustav clarified that he would never venture to confirm the crowds are never guided by reason, but reason would not have helped push humanity along the path of civilization with the intensity of scope that illusions have. So he's backpedaling a bit. Perhaps. If one thinks of the self-policing many do under the influence of an ideology or religion, he might be right. Society's general direction may be better despite the negative effects of false beliefs and illusions. More good than harm type situation. On the grand scale, what is good? the propagation of our genetics. I used to be friends with this nihilist jerk. He was always a bit of an idiot who became much worse in college, though uh, he thought all human life should be eliminated 
So, you know, here's at least one example of someone's values that don't believe propagation of our species or even existence of our species is a good thing. I tried not to judge people, so I ended up hanging out with a lot of people who were confirmed by my earlier impressions that they were indeed assholes. <laughs> In terms of our uh, social grand illusions, religious, ideological, etc., Gustav wrote, These illusions, the offspring of those unconscious forces by which we are led, were doubtless necessary. Carl Jung was only 20 years old when Gustav wrote this book, so perhaps it was this line which triggered a young Carl Jung, a young, a young Jung, <laughs> a young, a young Jung, a young Carl Jung. Ugh. Hack those uh, unconscious forces and you control the target. Humans today live a very unnatural life, seemingly unnatural. Perhaps the society we have built is as natural as the societies and structures bees and other instincts, other instincts, other insects build. Birds and ants and other life evolved to do what they do. But why did humans? Why are we any different? Did aliens create us? Ooh, maybe not. If they didn't, then we are behaving naturally, aren't we? Did we evolve to be lawyers, politicians, truck drivers, and waitresses, or did we evolve to be hunters and gatherers and nomads? Well, bees have complex systems. They have cleaners and through their interesting, their life cycle. I'm not going to tangent there, but so there's division of labor in the bee colonies. So most humans live sedentary lives in artificial structures, in artificial cities. The fact that we have to push ourselves to exercise just to stay healthy strikes me as odd. Do any other animals do that? You know, sure, bird nests are contrived structures, but, you know, made by the birds, as are other nests and dens. It seems animals uh, live wild, have fun, perhaps justifiably uh, fear for their lives at times and, and live and die. You know, do any of them sit on their, their patios contemplating modes of manipulation or philosophical questions of unconscious motivators? <laughs> I know, apparently we are at the stage of evolution where we're doing that and have been doing so for, well, thousands of years. While some humans have been pondering the complexities of reality for at least, you know, thousands of years, probably more, why don't the majority of humans? The bulk appear to be too mentally lazy to even question obvious lines from reporters, obvious lies from reporters and politicians. Are we mentally lazy or are we conditioned? Is it nature or nurture? Perhaps some of us are mentally feral weeds that are the seeds of dissent. Despite conversations with otherwise intelligent people, I have a hard time coming to grips with a mass being so ignorant that they are apparently willfully blind. What makes me so special? Nothing. I don't think I am. That's why I'm having such a hard time coming to grips with apparent stupidity of the masses or this Gustavian crowd. If what Gustav's claims is, is true, I can't expect this podcast to be much more than a, uh, a note to self, <laughs> right? If, if it is logic and reason. If what I claim is true, but then how does Gustav justify to himself the writing of his book? 
if he believes what he claims, that the masses are immune to logic and reason. What does Gustav consider his audience? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> or is it inquiring? Inquiring or inquiring? Is that British or American spelling? I don't know. This might seem like uh, like uh, idle speculation and uh, useless inquiry if it not for the state of the world today with the abuses of charter rights by the Canadian Prime Minister and the commenced plans of global hegemony. Hegemony? Hegemony. I like, I like hegemony. I already discussed that. Pending digital IDs and digital currencies and Chinese Communist Party-style social credit score. Gustav admits he doesn't understand the mechanism of the crowd's resilience to reason when he wrote, It seems at times as if nations were submitted to secret forces analogous to those which compel the acorn to transform itself into an oak or the comet to fall its orbit. To follow its orbit. While science and our apparent knowledge have advanced uh, we still don't know ultimately how those things occur. We we can calculate to a high precision the path of a comet, you know, the path that it will take due to gravitational warping of space-time, but we still don't know the mechanism of how mass warps space-time or the seemingly complex intelligence of a single cell. Maybe there are, you know, some humans who do or, or did know. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, hidden and forgotten knowledge out there. Perhaps our AI spawn will have a much greater insight the word, the word gestalt comes to mind. Gestalt means a unified whole, the properties of which cannot be derived from the summation of its component parts. Putting all the component parts of a human together do not make a living human. Frankenstein's monster notwithstanding. Maybe we need to be more holistic in our approach for trying to understand mechanisms. Isolated, narrow focus examinations may not suffice. Perhaps a more macroscopic view is required, even though it appears to be less precise, but maybe more accurate, like the garden hose. If you cannot hit a bee with a precise stream, broaden the stream to a wide shower and your accuracy will go up despite your precision going down. You have a greater chance of hitting the bee with a broad mist or shower. So long as we recognize this loss of precision and know we are speaking in imprecise generalizations, just because we can hit the bee with a wide shower does not mean we are a good shot. Just as broad generalizations may hit some truths, but also include a lot of errors, signal to noise. Cranking up the gain may give you the signal, but it may be difficult to discern with all that added noise. This unprecise approach of the wide mist is what Gustav is using, which is not intrinsically bad if you recognize the limitations. So he appears to be hitting the mark, but then he is making precise claims based on too broad of observations. Gustav claims were the crowd's resistance to reason alone to be taken into consideration, history would seem to be the result of improbable chances. He then cites a Galilean carpenter coming 
uh, becoming an all-powerful god for 2,000 years in whose name the most important civilizations were founded. But who's to say which civilizations were the most important or more important than others? And who's to say that history is not a result of improbable chances? Your parents meeting and creating you is an improbability given the number of humans on this planet and the complexities of human interactions. The probability of someone being born may not be that high, but the probability of you being born is astronomical. Just as societies will be born, but under what illusions or in whose name is the unlikely variable in the Gustavian model? Humans build civilizations. Religions do not. Religions and ideologies are the accoutrement of civilizations, the accessories and fluff. Just as it's probable that someone will be born, though you specifically were astronomically unlikely, Civilizations will be born with religious and ideologies. The specific religions and ideologies are the astronomically unlikely events, just like the lottery. Someone will win. Or rock stars. There will be a rock star, though it is astronomically unlikely to be any one specific person or any rare or highly competitive position in society, like the President of the United States. It's simple enough for those who achieve it, but impossible for those who do not. Just ask Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Or getting gold at the Olympics. Don't get me wrong, there is preparation in hard work, and and hard work, and, and most things, but ultimately it appears to be a chaotic thing that is up to chance perhaps a uh, probability wave type deal. You can increase your probability somewhat, but nothing is guaranteed unless it's fixed or you cheat. Lance Armstrong. Would it be, uh, would we uh, like to believe that civilizations spring from peaceful shared values or a cost benefit for the people? But sometimes might is right. Look at the monster Genghis Khan or leaders who killed less people than Khan, but are considered worse simply because they are closer in history, like Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Pol Pot. Did they create civilizations or just modify existing ones? At this stage of the world, is it even possible to create a new society? Well, the aspiring hegemonic globalists are trying, so time will tell. Gustav wrote, It's not by reason men are ruled, but in spite of it. He lists the sentiments often used on the targets like honor, self-sacrifice, religious faith, patriotism, and the love of glory. Well, let's break this down a bit. Honor. So what is that? Social credit. Respect from who? From someone else? Can you have honor if nobody knows what you did? Is it still honorable if only you know what you did? Is it honorable if nobody knows what you did? What if you did it and you forgot about it? Is it still honorable? Sure, I would think, maybe, I don't know. Faith, that others know and you don't, right? That's what faith, faith that others know and you don't. Somebody's telling you something, so that means you have to believe it on faith, right? It's, it's not just something that appears. Someone's telling you something that you have to have faith in, right? You have to trust in something. 
self-sacrifice. What does that even mean? That means you are worth less than others or, or some cause. You are worth less than the cause, right? Surrender yourself for a supernatural figure or a greater good. Yes. So patriotism, it's, that's the instinct to protect your tribe, right? Your tribe. Love of glory. What does that mean, right? The instinct to be recognized right, as valuable, to have high honor, to be respected by others. Right? So that's linked with honor. So those are Gustav's four immediate factors that affect the opinions of crowds. Number one, images, words, and mantra. Two, illusions. Three, experience. Four, reason or the resistance to it. So this brings us to Gustav's leaders of the crowds and their means of persuasion. He, he should have the, uh, he should have had the sentiments like honor, faith, patriotism, glory in this section, because this section only has two points. One, crowd types indistinctively obey a leader. Two, the means of persuasion are affirmation, repetition, and contagion. That's it. So leaders, Gustav claims like Jordan Peterson does that all groups of animals place themselves under the authority of a chief. In human crowds, this may be nothing more than an agitator or a ringleader. The leader's will is the nucleus around which the opinions of the crowd are grouped and attain to identity, according to Gustav. Attain to identity is a bizarre expression, but I think he means the crowd tethers to its identity around the opinions of the leader. 